We're back again, ladies and gentlemen. It's Chase and Josh, Factor Fantasy. That's Chase, I'm Josh, and we are here to finally start the next book in the Harry Potter series, Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. We have finally moved past the biggest book in the series in Harry Potter, The Order of the Phoenix. Uh, we gave you the kind of the details of the ending two weeks ago. Last week we talked a lot about the differences between the book and the movie where you probably saw Chase and I, reminiscent of our Game of Thrones day, tear that uh, movie apart for, for so to speak you know so we're really excited to move in into this book and i know that chase and i were talking about it and talking about how even though half-blood prince is a smaller book in terms of pages it does not lack for detail it does kind of get into it right away and you know correct me if i'm wrong man but like there is very few pages where i didn't jot at least one note down here through what we're going to tackle today, which will be chapters one through six. Do you kind of feel the same way? What did you, what was your experience? Oh, uh, the same. Uh, I pulled the old uh, Chase Brown again. You know, I <laughs> took all my notes in one night and Jay Nelly about killed me. <laughs> but yeah, but that's all part of it. Yeah, I got a whole notebook just on this. The chapters we're even running through in the next couple weeks. So and it really kicks off really good. Um you're starting to kind of see the effects of, you know, we talked about Fudge a lot last book about how, think about it this way, if he had made some changes before, it might not have turned out this way, but you're about to find out the percussions because of that. But man, this thing is detailed. Uh, don't think for a second because it's a little bit shorter that <laughs> we're not climbing up and because it, it's every single moment is really a, a detail moment that affects everything. It's not a bunch of fluff throwing this book at all. So yeah, I think we get on into it. Uh, we're kicking it off, you know, the chapter one, the other minister, and you're gonna start to see how things have just in the course of a few weeks here, or a couple weeks, um, things have really changed throughout the world. And I'll let Jay Nelly kick us off, man. You got it, brother. So what I'll do is I'll give us a little uh, backstory of where we ended with Order two weeks ago and then to kind of where we are today. Uh, we know, obviously, we, we ended two weeks ago with Order. We started with Chapter 34 and finished with 38. In Chapter 34, we had that really cool climax of the Death Eaters chasing the teenagers through the Department of Mysteries. Uh, you know, them almost escaping, but finally getting cornered. Uh, they corner Harry into the... the the chamber of death room, right? The death chamber room. Right. And you think that Harry's about to hand over the prophecy to Malfoy because they basically, they've been, like, Bellatrix started torturing Neville. The rest of the group was, like, incapacitated. Ron, Ron was, like, fighting with the brain and the tentacles from the brain. And then, like, Luna was knocked unconscious. Hermione had that Antonin Dolohov's curse across her chest that I talked about for a quick interesting fact. And then uh, Ginny had snapped her ankle, right? So, like, there, there, there was, they were kind of done. They were spent. The race was run. What the race was run. And Harry's like, all right, fine. Here you go. And then all of a sudden, bursting through the doors were five really key members of the Order of the Phoenix. It was Sirius. It was Lupin. It was Mad Eye Moody. It was Tonks, and it was Kingsley Shacklebolt. And they come in and they kind, of, they, they save the day in the terms of they get the Death Eaters off Harry's back. Harry still got the prophecy. He's trying to pull Neville out of the room. Uh, ended up being where the prophecies smashed because Neville had that weird leg lock jinx curse thing that was flopping all over the place. And so the, the prophecy smashes. Uh, there's battles going on everywhere. The Death Eaters actually start overtaking the order. 
Uh, you know, Bellatrix knocks uh, Tonks unconscious. Sirius goes to meet her. They're doing, like, Kingsley's doing Anton and Dalahov. Like, you know, Mad-Eye Moody's on the ground, eye-rolling across the chamber there. So, like, the Order's really getting their asses kicked. Then Bellatrix, you know, hits Sirius with that curse of blastism through the veal. And, you know, no more Sirius Black, right? And then you think it's a moment of despair. Everything's all lost. Dumbledore appears. He whips all up the Death Eaters in one quick swish of his wand with an anti-disaparating jinx. And then as Chase awesomely took him through you, that really great chapter, the only one he ever feared, we got a great battle scene of Voldemort and Dumbledore, two of the greatest wizards of the age. Peak battle going back and forth. Then we go into like the Lost Prophecy where we learn about the contents of the prophecy, why Voldemort wanted it. You heard Chase and I kind of go back and forth about was it really necessary, you know, all the details that came through the prophecy when it was kind of more of a diversion more than anything because there was really nothing in it. So you guys heard us go on and on about that a bit. And then we just end it with, uh, you know, Harry being really sad and depressed about the loss of Sirius and really not finding joy in life at all. He's even like searching for a nearly headless Nick to try to see if Sirius can come back as a ghost and, and all of that. But uh, uh, then the very, very end where we left you off, it was cool because members of the Order of the Phoenix walked right up to the Dursleys and basically said, if you don't treat him correctly, we're going to be by. And, and if we don't hear from him for a couple of days, we'll just show up at your doorstep and we'll figure out what's going on. So that was kind of where Order of the Phoenix ended and where we're going to kind of pick up into here. And as Chase said, you know, a lot of things that happen with Fudge and if the decisions that Fudge has made have a lot of repercussions, and we're about to jump into those repercussions today. So I say we get a quick malice in the chalice, and we jump into uh, the chapters that we're going to cover today, man. Yeah, man. Uh, one last note on there. Uh, oh, by the way, real quick, we got some new visuals here, which is pretty cool. So if you're looking on my end, I got a Half-Blood Prince poster in the back. Uh, most people call this one the Empire Strikes Back of Harry Potter, guys. So... Uh, definitely stay tuned because it, it gets intense, <laughs> that's for sure. Uh, on the front here, I got another deluxe edition for you so you can actually see. Uh, make sure I'm saying the name right. I'm not the best with names, but Madungus Fletcher. Is that's that good. how I say it? I yes. said it right on that one, right? I'm working, <laughs> yeah. on my, working on my names here, yeah. <laughs> definitely. Um, then on top, I put on top of that one, I put uh, together jo uh, Josh over here, Jay Nelly hits it on the spot with this but i got uh our boys albus and harry hanging out and then of course you know uh little foreshadowing of the future i got hermione and ron on top of the british edition which is pretty cool and then uh one guy that plays a big role on top of uh, my favorite book this one actually i still remember when i picked this up uh you know these later books especially i have the biggest vision in my head of when I got the book and it, we actually had a thing called media play back in the day so it was almost like um like how blockbuster and stuff went out of business but I got this book there and waited in line the day it came out and uh, I put uh one guy we'll talk about on the bottom with blonde hair at some point today he plays a major role McGonagall's next to him but the one I put on a pedestal here that's going to play a big role throughout this entire book is uh Make sure I say it right. Severus Snape. You got it, brother. You got <laughs> Good it right. Stuff, man. <laughs> what about you? How's everything looking on your end, by the way, Jay Nelly? So my, man. Yeah. yeah, right? It's uh, Mine looks exactly the same as you guys have come to recognize my setup. It's very, very simple. On the one side here, I've got the film uh, Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. 
on the other side I've got the novel, the American edition. I don't have the cool stuff that Chase has got. He's got like the British edition, he's got like the deluxe edition, he's got the original, uh, you know, American version. I'm very simple. I got the one you'll find in like the Walmart store with the hardcover, and then I got the regular DVD, and then in the center, all I got is Dumbledore and Harry. I put them right in front and center because they play the biggest role throughout this this book and what they learn and what we come to learn uh, that they're they're uh, big lessons that they get I won't, I won't get too far into it, but they play a really, really integral role to this uh this movie and in this book so definitely with that guys, uh, that's way, what that's, i got on my oh, sorry not to interrupt you <laughs> i was just gonna say uh no jay nelly his uh show he's got there on the side the visuals if you're looking on youtube uh that's not no the walmart that's literally like he clears the clutter he's got that professional executive look <laughs> Mine, I just threw a bunch of shit up here. <laughs> Where did you get that from? I don't know, man. I went dumpster diving earlier. Found a lot of shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, man. Let's get a malice in the chalice. Get it started. Brand new book, man. Let's you got it. it, dude. Cheers. Cheers to the, uh, the, the end of the order and the beginning of the Half-Blood Prince. <laughs> Filthy Half-Blood. <laughs> yeah. Ah, let's do it. Perfect. All right. Well, let's go ahead and get started here in Chapter 1. Uh, the chapter one is, as Chase mentioned, is called The Other Minister. We'll be tackling chapter one all the way through uh, chapter six today. Chapter six is labeled Draco's Detour. So those are the ones we're going to be covering. One, two, three, four, five, and six today. Next week we'll tackle chapter seven through twelve. Uh, to get us rolling, though, we open up learning a little bit about the other minister, the, the muggle prime minister. So this is the first time in any Harry Potter book that we're getting a perspective from the Muggles to start with, right? This is like, it's always usually Harry or in the Sorcerer's Stone. It was, you know, like Professor McGonagall in the beginning, like, you know, Dumbledore leaving Harry on the doorsteps and all that. Like, you know, this is the first time like we're getting a Muggle point of view in a Harry Potter book to begin the story. So, but as Chase said that there's repercussions to Fudge's actions to just, Talk about a little bit of what, in in the point of view from the Muggle Prime Minister of what's going on, he's had a really rough week, right? And so he start, we start reading and he details the things that have happened in this past week that have caused him you know, a lot of stress and how his opposition and the person who wants to take his spot as the next Muggle Prime Minister is kind of capitalizing and like getting the public to think that he's not doing enough. You know, so that way he could possibly, his opposer could possibly get elected. So anyway, some of the big catastrophic, wow, big catastrophic events that happen include the Brockdale Bridge collapsing. They say that snapped cleanly in two. There was two nasty murders, two nasty, well-publicized murders at that. Mm -hmm. And those are uh, Amelia Bones and Emmeline Vance, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Uh, there was a freak hurricane in the West Country. His junior minister, Herbert Chorley, was acting very peculiarly, and he was going to now be spending a lot more time with his family. And so this is kind of the stuff in terms of like the news and what's going on that Harry had expected to see on the news in The Order of the Phoenix. If you guys remember, Harry was hiding underneath like his aunt and uncle's like, window trying to listen to the news, and there was no news because Voldemort was keeping a low profile because everyone decided that they weren't going to believe he actually returned. Well, now everyone knows Voldemort's back, so he's like, all right, well, you know I'm back now. I guess I better make an impression, right? And so, yeah, I mean, and also the, the last thing in terms of the weird things that have been happening, there's a chilly mist in the middle of July, and we're about to find mm -hmm. out a little bit about what that chilly mist is as well. 
Um, going into that on page three, the portrait that hangs opposite the prime minister's desk uh, is he ends up talking to the prime minister and and says like you know Professor Fudge or not Professor Cornelius Fudge the minister of magic wants a meeting with the Muggle prime minister, and so the Muggle prime minister is like well I've already got like an event today and I'm supposed to be fielding a call from the president of a different country and the portrait's like well we can go ahead and arrange him to forget you will be taking this meeting from fudge so <laughs> he ends up uh you know coming through he's like fine i'll see him but you know the muggle prime minister starts remembering back to when he was first elected and like how fudge had come in and explained that there was a magical community and the prime minister thought you know he himself was going crazy but yeah fudge had told the prime minister back then that they will only ever communicate when something really serious is going on in the magical world. And we also we are also told that the Prime Minister before this current one, that he tried to throw Fudge out of the window because he thought that Fudge was a hoax. And this Prime yeah. Minister was like, you know, back then in that day, the Prime Minister who just was elected thought Fudge was a hoax too. And then realized that he wasn't. So, but to kind of even take that a step further... After Fudge met him for the first time, the Muggle Prime Minister recalls like trying and failing to remove the portrait of the man who announces Fudge's arrival. And he said that several carpenters, a builder or two, an art historian, and the Chancellor of Echikir all tried and failed to remove it. Which probably means that there was a permanent sticking charm placed on it. Very similarly to in Grimwald Place with the uh, the portrait of Sirius's mother. They tried to remove that and couldn't. So that probably is what that causes it to stick on there and not be removed and then we start hearing a little bit about all the times fudge has come and seen this specific prime minister this prime minister recalls that less than a year after fudge came to inform him about the happenings uh oh i'm sorry that even before that the prime minister recalls three years ago when fudge showed up and gave him a heads up about Sirius black escaping the wizard prison and filled him in on the first wizarding war and who Voldemort was and basically gave him the whole backstory of the first wizarding war. And then from there, the Prime Minister remembers the second time Fudge came and saw him. It was less than a year after that, he came to informing about the happenings at the Quidditch World Cup. And he had to do that because you guys remember the Death Eaters were uh, torturing the Muggles at the Quidditch World Cup. Like throwing them upside down and like making them do weird like you know figures in the air and stuff. After that... Uh, shortly afterwards, Fudge had to came back and tell him la only last year in Order of the Phoenix about the mass breakout of uh, the Death Eaters in Azkaban where Bellatrix Lestrange, Antonin Dolohov, Augustus Rookwood, when they all broke out, he had to go back and tell him about that. And so now, this time, to add on to all of that, Fudge has to drop the bombshell on this Muggle Prime Minister <laughs> that Voldemort is back and the country is at war. So think about all these things. Like, There's never been a time where like Fudge arrives and it's been like good news. It's never like, hey, do you want to go out for a drink and like have a good, cool, chill day? No, it's always like, hey, like stuff's sitting the fan over on our side. Just figure I'd let you know. No, I gotta go. Bye. So there's just a lot of stuff going on. Definitely. For sure, man. And then. I, oh, sorry. Just yeah, like no, comment on yeah, that. Yeah, take I a couple felt things. Like, yeah. Oh, you're fine. I just wanted to say, like, so I almost felt like because he's visited this prime minister so much, minister so much. Like, remember, he even tried to, like, blow him off at the beginning. Like, he says, listen, it's not a very good time for me. I'm waiting for a telephone call, you see, from the president. But he was, like, almost like when this all this stuff was getting there, like, he's getting annoyed. Like, he's, like, been talking to him. And I feel like it doesn't say this in the book, but you almost get, like, this prime minister that he's trying to go see. Like, he is already developed 
the thought like this guy's annoying like i don't want to deal with him so like just do whatever you can to get him out out of the way here and then remember when fudge is there like he sees the way he looks and he was just like before he starts going into all the stuff like he's like whatever like i really don't care about your problems but he goes had a bad one too have you <laughs> asked the prime minister stiffly hoping to convey by this that he had quite enough on his plate already without any extra helpings from fudge <laughs> so it was like i don't really ha have time for your shit and i don't want you in here was kind of the vibe that i got from this guy for sure i mean it was too i mean there was actually a really good quote talking about like Literally, there they, he said like oh, it's good to see you, and the Mughal prime minister is like, well, I can't return that compliment because every time you come here and show up, you tell me about all these bad things that are happening. Like, yeah. like I don't think so. So this is the actual quote. He said the prime minister could not honestly return this compliment, so said nothing at all. He was not remotely pleased to see Fudge, whose occasional appearances, apart from being downright alarming themselves, generally meant that he was about to hear some very bad news. So it's like he just wants him to get out of there. He's like, dude, like. Then every time you come here, it's never good news. I'm so sick of it. <laughs> like, for sure, man. 100%. Like, what good has Fudge? It it starts to make you wonder. Like, I don't recall anyone really in the books that's had a compliment to say about Fudge ever. Like, I mean, No, I guess maybe him. in Prisoner of Azkaban when he was nice to Harry and didn't terminate him from Hogwarts for blowing up his Aunt Marge. I guess that was the nicest thing he's ever done. I don't know, <laughs> yeah, man. That was <laughs> like, it. And that was just... Oh, you're not taking into context of the situation, Harry. Yeah, once <laughs> well, they thought he was like serious black broke out to kill him and stuff. Yeah, like yeah, 100%, man. And you know, and going on from there, just to talk about some of the things like Fudge actually tells the prime minister that all the the stuff that he's dealing with on his end is actually because of the wizarding world and Voldemort. He actually tells uh, and these Fudge tells the minister the disasters that have been happening are the cause of Voldemort and the Death Eaters. And actually like so basically, the Brockdale Bridge collapsing, snapping cleanly to, was the work of the Death Eaters. The two nasty murders, like Amelia Bones and Emmeline Vance, we'll talk about that in just a second. But the freak hurricane in the West Country, they suspect giant involvement. They Because like, they, they said there was trees uprooted and stuff, and he's like, well, they used giants last time. And then also, in terms of the, uh, the very... Unnest like unseasonable chilly mist in the middle of July talks about the Dementors breeding like the Dementors yeah. are outside of the ministry control uh, they're outside of ministry control and they're breeding now mm -hmm. and then on top of that uh, we learned that Emmeline we learned that Amelia Bones was murdered and he actually says there's evidence to support that Voldemort himself was the one that killed Amelia Bones so she was the head of the Department of Magical Law Enforcement and if you guys are wondering Amelia Bones why does that sound familiar she was actually at Harry's hearing last year and was as the one who asked him if he could produce a corporeal Patronus or not. And she's actually a relative of someone in the DA, which we'll, we'll talk about her later on. And we mentioned her last book, but we'll talk a little bit about it in this book as well. Uh, but the fact is, it says the evidence showed that Amelia Bones put up a real fight, which is pretty respectable against Voldemort himself, right? He's one of the most powerful wizards ever. You know, her by herself put up a good fight against him. But yeah, she ultimately was murdered by him. Uh, yeah, he said the, the Fudge also tells the Prime Minister that Dementors are swarming all over the place, attacking people left and right, and that, that they are the ones that's causing all the myths and that they're breeding outside of the Ministry control. And then, you know, to Chase's point about the repercussions, we finally get the bombshell, the dropping of the bombshell that we learn Fudge was fired and that the whole wizarding community was screaming for his resignation, which 
Honestly, guys, he really did deserve after how he handled yeah. Voldemort's return by making Dumbledore and Harry out to be liars and, like, basically wasting a whole year of where they could have been preparing by just sitting there, like, mudslinging and slandering Dumbledore and Harry's name. Like, they had a whole year to figure out how they could protect as many people, and they just wasted it by calling a teenager a liar and, like, the most genius wizard that they ever have known, just a senile old man, right? So, honestly, you reap what you sow, right? So... <laughs> And then talking a little bit about the new minister of magic, this is what Fudge says about him. He says, I wish him luck, said Fudge, sounding bitter for the first time. I've been writing to Dumbledore twice a day for the past fortnight, but he won't budge. If he'd just been prepared to persuade the boy, I might still be, well, maybe Scrimmager will have more success. Well, that's a foreshadow, guys, because a lot of the, in this book, like the ministry wants to, makes it look like and seem like to the public that they're doing a lot of good and they're doing their job and the most that they can and this that little section comes as a foreshadow of what they want Dumbledore to persuade Harry to do which I won't I won't give it away but to just actually describe Rufus Scrimmageor's physical appearance and description I'm just gonna go ahead and read this this small little excerpt here about him it says the Prime Minister's first foolish thought was that Rufus Scrimmageor looked rather like an old lion there were streaks of gray in his mane of tawny hair and his bushy eyebrows. He had keen yellowish eyes behind a pair of wire-rimmed spectacles and a certain rangy, loping grace even though he walked with a slight limp. There was an immediate impression of shrewdness and toughness, and the Prime Minister thought he understood why the wizarding community preferred Scrimmager to fudge as a leader in these dangerous times. So that's a little bit about Rufus Scrimmager and his appearance and how he was described in terms of the description, right? Uh, but going on from there, on page 17, Scrimmager actually reveals to the Prime Minister that they're going to add more security to the Prime Minister, which he is kind of upset about. He's like, no, it's like my life. I'm happy with my security. He's like, there's actually a really awesome guy here named Kingsley Shacklebolt. He does more work than anybody. And Rufus Scrimmager's like, well, yeah, because he's a wizard. <laughs> and he's, then he's like, kind of gets like, he kind of gets like annoyed. And he's like, well, I thought you liked him. And he's like, well, I do like him. So it's like, then what the heck are you complaining about? Like, are you done complaining? So anyways, like, I thought that was something that was worth mentioning there. But uh, after that as well, Scrimmager tells the Prime Minister that his junior minister, Herbert Chorley, has been acting so strangely because he's been reacting to a poorly performed imperious curse and that he attempted to strangle three healers in St. Mungo's. Now, that's a really big deal because all like these healers are basically what you would come to think of as doctors and they're trying to help him. So it's not just he's acting weird and quacky like, he, like the Prime Minister thought in the beginning. It's now taken a dangerous edge to it as well. So now, now like, it's... It's like, okay, we have to remove him from the public because he's a danger to society. He tried to kill three wizards. Like, they're like these healers, they're still wizards, you know what I mean? So I thought that was something that was definitely necessary to mention. And then uh, kind of closing up here on Chapter 1, we learned that Fudge decided to stay on at the ministry in an advisory capacity, which honestly is the absolute least he could do because he kind of made everything come about the way it is like it's his fault all this stuff happened so it'd be kind yeah. of shitty of him to just be like oh well all this is my fault here you go i'm going home for retirement like you know like he at least he's doing the, the quote-unquote right thing and like staying on in advisory capacity and helping out in any way that he possibly can so i did think that that was something that was important and then what i'll do is i'll read this last little dialogue at the last page of this chapter before we jump into chapter two and this little last dialogue i just thought it was cool 
This is talking from the Prime Minister's mouth to uh, Fudge and Rufus Scrimmager. He says, But for heaven's sake, you're wizards. You can do magic. Surely you can sort out, well, anything. And Scrimmager turns slowly on the spot and exchanged an incredulous look with Fudge, who really did manage a smile this time as he said kindly, The trouble is, the other side can do magic too, Prime Minister. And with that, the two wizards stepped one after the other into the bright green fire and vanished. So, big takeaways from that chapter. Fudge is fired. Rufus Grimmajor is the new Prime Minister. All these crazy things that have been happening have been the work of Voldemort and his Death Eaters. Those, Mm -hmm. Those are the three big main key things I took from the chapter. What did you take from chapter one? That's pretty much what I took. I did want to mention one thing. Herbert Corley, is that how you pronounce his last name? He yeah, like, yeah, Herbert Chorley, Herbert Corley, yeah, something like that. It was yeah. one of those two, yeah. Um, well, it was kind of, I mentioned it in passing, not really focusing on it. I don't think, no, nah, I didn't. And when we were going to, talking about St. Mungo's, and not in any of the Interesting Facts episodes, but when we were talking about here, he's known as being one of those people that was at St. Mungo's for such a long time. Because he thinks he's a duck. Like, they're having problems with him coming back around. But the one of the biggest things that we talked about that you mentioned was the giants. You know, if you go all the way back to Goblet of Fire, if Fudge had really just focused and actually realized Dumbledore wasn't out to get him, that was one of the things Dumbledore was telling him. Like, go make peace with these giants. And that was his big divide. He's like, hell no. I'm not going to make <laughs> peace with these giants. Well, now it's exactly like... Dumbledore said happened you know Voldemort's been reaching out to all these people and chaos is really spreading is what's going on and um yeah and that's really where we're at here it's it's interesting because now we're not just talking about the wizarding world that Fudge just fucked up now we're talking about also the muggle world and it's branching out everywhere so this guy probably is one of the most hated people I hate to say that but He's not, this is not a good place for him right now. A hundred percent agree. And then one other thing that I wanted to talk about with that chapter too, because I know it's something that you talked about in your interesting facts is like the Dementors breeding too. I think that's something that's really important mm-hmm. that, you know, they're fully outside ministry control now and they're like attacking people left and right and they're breeding. And Chase, you, yeah. you did some sort of uh, interesting fact on how they breed. So, and I don't, clearly remember it enough so i want you to talk about a little bit about the breeding of dementors just since we just kind of touched on it for that chapter yeah uh this was actually on um remember guys and it might take you a minute to remember because this was on that massive long interesting facts episode and it related because we were talking about umbridge and how she was controlling dementors so it was on that big one that y'all got that was like three hours after the five hours one um, but yeah, so Dementors, what's crazy is even according to Pottermore.com, they don't know exactly how they breed. They do know they do breed, but the way the ministry actually discovered the first time they ever multiplied. So it was back when one of the first recorded records of the Patronus charm um, was uh, known when they went to actually uh basically Azkaban was built on top of an island that this serial killer uh Chrysdis was one of the darkest wizards of all time and he built it on there and he was using concealment charms as a hiding place and he would lure in wizards uh and he would basically let the dementors suck out their soul and he would torture and kill people it's messed up 
But what they found was the way they discovered that Dementors were breeding and multiplying was for a while, the ministry itself wanted the building that was not called Azgaman yet demolished because they kept multiplying in there and they didn't know how to get rid of them. But it said they multiply in filth in habitats that are filled with fungus is the exact quote. So there's no words on how they actually do this, but it was first discovered when the ministry described the conditions of the prison is what they turned it into, but the building that Acrisdis built there was so bad, they recommended they actually just demolish it with spells. And whatever was in there was just going to die and they weren't going to use it. But uh, this was back almost in, you know, even before Geller Grindelwald, but they were so, the prisons they had were so small and they were so overused with wizards that, um, you know, took up these criminal areas uh, that the building was so big from this sick torture that they were doing, they threw their worst criminals in there, and that's how the ministry started using it. So uh, the point being, it doesn't say exactly how they breed, but it's got to be some nasty way because, uh, yeah, producing in filth and fungus, that's not exactly your classic date night. <laughs> That's a very fair point, bro. So we'll go ahead and jump in here to to chapter two. And chapter two is one of my favorite chapters actually in this book because you start to like learn things and it kind of leads you down a certain mindset and it's really, really cool. So I'm going to start here. This is one of the chapters where we're, well, I'll read about like, you know, 10 pages word for word. But first before, I'm just going to bullet point some big things before I get to the part where it's necessary to start. So what we, first thing we see here is two people apparate right they start on and at first one apparates and one apparates right after her it's two women their names don't come up just yet but you'll be figured it out pretty dang quickly right so two people apparate they start on innocent fox and of course on instinct the fox sprang up to run away and one of the two shoots green light at it and kills it means i use the vaticadaver curse right so mm-hmm. it just poor little fox which is minding its own business like having some dinner and then you know, it gets startled and runs away, and then it's dead out of nowhere. So, but anyways, in page 19, we do learn that the two apparators are Narcissa Malfoy and Bellatrix Lestrange. And in page 21, we do get some really great foreshadows here. Uh, this Talking about the quotes here, this is Bellatrix to Narcissa. And she calls her Sissy, you know, as like her pet name for Narcissa. It's a, Sissy, you must not do this. You can't trust him, says Bellatrix. The Dark Lord trusts him, doesn't he? Said Narcissa. The Dark Lord is, I believe, mistaken. And that's from Bellatrix there. He's like, in any case, we were told not to speak of the plan to anyone. This is a betrayal of the Dark Lords, which she stops there. So there's a foreshadow of a couple things here. Foreshadow of this plan that the Dark Lord has, and foreshadow of Bellatrix not trusting Snape and thinking that Voldemort's wrong about Snape. So there's some really great foreshadow just in that like sentence alone. Then we get into page 22, and we learn that Snape lives on Spinner's End. That's that's the place where it's called, and that he is the one Narcissus and Bellatrix were referring to, and it talks about like going to see him. Right. Uh, page 23, we find that Wormtail is actually living with Snape, and he's basically there to do like to assist Snape is what Wormtail says. But basically, like wait on him and like do everything he asks in a, in a way. So, um, yeah, Wormtail was there. Voldemort sent him to assist Snape. So at this time, we're wondering whether Snape, you know, is Snape in, in Voldemort's service? 
And then we're going to find out later, in just about a second here, when on page 24, when Snape toasts to, quote-unquote, the Dark Lord, it's like, whoa, what's going on? And so now, what I'll do here is I'll read on page 25, through the end of the chapter, where it says, um, we're going to go from page 25 here. I'll start in... Let's see, Severus, I know I ought not be here. That's about, that's the third paragraph on page 25. I'm going to take that all the way through the end of the chapter, and then we'll talk a little bit about everything that it means. So, Severus, I know I ought not be here. I have been told to say nothing to anyone, but then you ought hold your tongue, snarled Bellatrix, particularly in present company. Present company, repeated Snape sardonically. And what am I to understand by that, Bellatrix? That I don't trust you, Snape, as you very well know. Narcissa let out a noise that may have been a dry sob, covered her face with her hands, and Snape set his glass on upon the table, sat back again, his hands upon the arm of his chair, smiling into Bellatrix's glowering face. Narcissa, I think we ought to hear what Bellatrix is bursting to say. It will save tedious interruptions. Well, continue, Bellatrix, said Snape. Why is it that you do not trust me? A hundred reasons, she said loudly, strutting out from behind the sofa to slam her glass down upon the table. Where to start? Where were you when the Dark Lord fell? Why did you never make any attempt to find him when he vanished? What have you been doing all these years that you've lived in Dumbledore's pocket? Why did you stop the Dark Lord from procuring the Sorcerer's Stone? Why did you not return at once when the Dark Lord was reborn? Where were you a few weeks ago when we battled to retrieve the prophecy for the Dark Lord? And why, Snape, is Harry Potter still alive when you've had him at your mercy for five years? She paused her chest rising and falling rapidly, the color high in her cheeks. Behind her, Narcissa sat motionless, her face still hiding in her hands. Snape smiled. Before I answer you, oh yes, Bellatrix, I am going to answer. You can carry my words back to the others who whisper behind my back and carry false tales of my treachery to the Dark Lord. Before I answer you, I say, let me ask you a question in turn. Do you really think that the Dark Lord has not asked me each and every one of those questions? And do you really think that had I not been able to give satisfactory answers that I would be sitting here talking to you? She hesitated. I know he believes you, but you think he is mistaken? Or that I have somehow hoodwinked him? Fooled the Dark Lord, the greatest wizard, the most accomplished legilimens the world has ever seen? Beltrix said nothing, but looked for the first time a little discomfited. Snape did not press the point. He picked up his drink again, sipped it, and continued. You ask where I was when the Dark Lord fell. I was where he had ordered me to be, at Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry, because he wished me to spy upon Albus Dumbledore. You know, I presume, that it was on the Dark Lord's order that I took up the post? She nodded almost imperceptibly and opened her mouth, but Snape forestalled her. You ask why I did not attempt to find him when he vanished. For the same reason, Avery, Yaxley, the Caros, Greyback, Lucius, he inclined his head slightly to Narcissa, and many others did not attempt to find him. I believed him finished. I am not proud of it. I was wrong. But there it is. If he had not forgiven we who lost faith at the time, he would have very few followers left. He'd have me, said Bellatrix passionately, I, who spent many years in Azkaban for him. Yes, indeed, most admirable, said Snape in a bored voice. Of course, you weren't a lot of use to him in prison, but the gesture was undoubtedly fine. Gesture, she shrieked in her fury. She looked slightly mad. Well, I endured Dementors. You remained at Hogwarts comfortably playing Dumbledore's pet. Not quite, 
said Snape calmly. He wouldn't give me the defense against the dark arts job, you know. Seemed to think it might, uh, bring about a relapse. You know, tempt me into my old ways. Oh, so this was your sacrifice to the Dark Lord? Not teaching your favorite subject? Why did you stay there all the time, Snape? Still spying on Dumbledore for a master you believe dead? Hardly. Although the Dark Lord is pleased that I never deserted my post, I had 16 years worth of information on Dumbledore to give him when he returned. A rather more useful welcome back present than endless reminiscences of how unpleasant Azkaban is. But you stayed. Yes, Bellatrix, I stayed, said Snape, betraying a hint of impatience for the first time. I had a comfortable job that I preferred to stint in Azkaban. They are rounding up Death Eaters, you know. Dumbledore's protection kept me out of jail. It was most convenient, and I used it. I repeat, the Dark Lord does not complain that I stayed, so I do not see why you do. I think you want to know next, he pressed on a little more loudly, for Bellatrix showed every sign of interrupting, why I stood between the Dark Lord and the Sorcerer's Stone. That is easily answered. He did not know whether he could trust me. He thought, like you, that I had turned from faithful Death Eater to Dumbledore Stooge. He was in a pitiable condition, very weak, sharing the body of a mediocre wizard. He did not dare reveal himself to a former ally if that ally might turn him over to Dumbledore or the Ministry. I deeply regret that he did not trust me. He would have returned to power three years sooner. As it was, I saw only greedy and unworthy Quirrell attempting to steal a stone, and I admit I did all I could to thwart him. Bellatrix's mouth twisted as though she had taken an unpleasant dose of medicine. But you did not return when he came back. You didn't fly back to him at once when you felt the dark mark burn. Correct. I returned two hours later. I returned on Dumbledore's orders. On Dumbledore, she began in tones of outrage. Think, said Snape, impatient again. Think. By waiting two hours, just two hours, I ensured that I could remain at Hogwarts as a spy. By allowing Dumbledore to think that I was only returning to the Dark Lord's side because I was ordered to... I have been able to pass information on Dumbledore and the Order of the Phoenix ever since. Consider Bellatrix. The Dark Mark had been growing stronger for months. I knew he must be about to return. All the Death Eaters knew. I had plenty of time to think about what I wanted to do to plan my next move. To escape like Kakarov, didn't I? The Dark Lord's initial displeasure at my lateness vanished entirely, I assure you, when I explained that I remained faithful, although Dumbledore thought I was his man. Yes, the Dark Lord thought I had left him forever, but he was wrong. But what use have you been, Sr. Belichick? What useful information have we had from you? My information has been conveyed directly to the Dark Lord. If he chooses not to share it with you, he shares everything with me, said Belichick, firing up at once. He calls me his most loyal, his most faithful. Does he? said Snape, his voice delicately inflected to suggest his disbelief. Does he still, after the fiasco at the Ministry? That was not my fault, said Belichick, flushing. The Dark Lord has... In the past, entrusted me with his most precious... If, if Lucius hadn't... Don't you dare! Don't you dare blame my husband, said Narcissa in a low and deadly voice, looking up at her sister. There's no point appropriating blame, said Snape smoothly. What is done, is done. But not by you, said Belgix furiously. No, you were once again absent while the rest of us ran dangers, were you not, Snape? My orders were to remain behind, said Snape. Perhaps you disagree with the Dark Lord. Perhaps you think that Dumbledore would not have noticed if I had joined forces with the Death Eaters and fought the Order of the Phoenix. And, forgive me, you speak of dangers. You were facing six teenagers, were you not? <laughs> <laughs> they were joined, as you very well know, by half of the Order before long, snarled Bellatrix. And while we are on the subject of the Order, you still claim you cannot reveal the whereabouts of their headquarters, don't you? I am not the secret keeper. I cannot speak the name of the place. 
You understand how enchantments work, I think. The Dark Lord is satisfied with the information I have passed on the Order. It led, as perhaps you have guessed, to the recent capture and murder of Emmeline Vance, and has certainly helped dispose of Sirius Black, though I give you full credit for finishing him off. He inclined his head and toasted her. Her expression did not soften. You're avoiding my last question, Snape. Harry Potter. You could have killed him at any point in the past five years. You have not done it. Why? Have you discussed this matter with the Dark Lord? Asked Snape. He? Lately we... I'm asking you, Snape. If I had murdered Harry Potter, the Dark Lord could not have used his blood to regenerate, making him invincible. You claim you foresaw his use of the boy? She jeered. I do not claim it. I had no idea of his plans. I have already confessed I thought the Dark Lord dead. I am really trying to explain why the Dark Lord is not sorry that Potter survived. At least until a year ago. But why did you keep him alive? Have you not understood me? It was only Dumbledore's protection that was keeping me out of Azkaban. Do you disagree that murdering his favorite student might have turned him against me? But there was more to it than that. I should remind you that when Potter first arrived at Hogwarts, there were still many stories circulating about him, rumors that he himself was a great dark wizard, which is how he had survived the Dark Lord's attack. Indeed, many of the Dark Lord's old followers thought Potter might be a standard on which we could rally once more. I was curious, I admit it, and not at all inclined to murder him the moment he set foot in the castle. Of course, it became apparent to me very quickly that he had no extraordinary talent at all. He has fought his way out of a number of tight corners by a simple combination of sheer luck and more talented friends. He is mediocre to the last degree, and obnoxious and self-satisfied as his father was before him. I have done my utmost to have him thrown out of Hogwarts, where I believe he scarcely belongs, but kill him or allow him to be killed in front of me, I would have been a fool to risk it with Dumbledore close at hand. And through all this, we are supposed to believe that Dumbledore has never suspected you, asked Bellatrix. He has no idea of your true allegiance. He trusts you implicitly still. I have played my part well, said Snape, and you overlooked Dumbledore's great weakness. He has to believe in the best of people. I spun him a tale of deepest remorse when I joined his staff, fresh from my Death Eater days, and he embraced me with open arms, though, as I say, never allowing me near the dark arts and he could help. Dumbledore has been a great wizard. Oh, yes, he has, for Bellatrix had made a scathing noise. <laughs> the Dark Lord acknowledges it. I am pleased to say, however, that Dumbledore is growing old. The duel with the Dark Lord last month shook him. He has since sustained a serious injury because his reactions are slower than they once were. But through all these years, he has never stopped trusting Severus Snape, and therein lies my great value to the Dark Lord. Bellatrix still looked unhappy, though she appeared unsure how best to attack Snape, yes, how best to attack Snape next. Taking advantage of her silence, Snape turned to his sister. Now, you came to ask me for help, Narcissa? Narcissa looked up at him, her face eloquent with despair. Yes, Severus. I, I think you are the only one who can help me. I have nowhere else to turn. Lucius is in jail, and she closed her eyes, and two large tears seeped beneath her eyelids. The Dark Lord has forbidden me to speak of it, Narcissa continued, her eyes still closed. He wishes none to know of the plan. It is very secret, but if he has forbidden it, you ought not to speak, said Snape at once. The Dark Lord's word is law. Narcissa gasped as though she had been doused with cold water. Bellatrix looked satisfied for the first time since she had entered the house. There, she said triumphantly to her sister, even Snape says so. You were told not to talk, so hold your silence. But Snape had gotten to his feet and strode to the small window, peered through the curtains and the deserted street, and closed them with a jerk. 
He turned around to face Narcissa, frowning. It so happens that I know of the plan, he said in a low voice. I am one of the few the Dark Lord has told. Nevertheless, had I not been in on the secret, Narcissa, you would have been guilty of a great treachery to the Dark Lord. I thought you must know about it, said Narcissa, breathing more freely. He trusts you so, Severus. You know about the plan, said Bellatrix, her fleeting expression of satisfaction replaced by a look of outrage. You know? Certainly, said Snape. But what helped you recall, Narcissa? If you are imagining I can persuade the Dark Lord to change his mind, I'm afraid there is no hope. Not at all. Severus, she whispered, tears sliding down her pale cheeks. My son, my only son. Draco should be proud, said Bellatrix indifferently. The Dark Lord is granting him a great honor, and I will say this for Draco. He isn't shrinking away from his duty. He seems glad of a chance to prove himself, excited at the prospect. Narcissa began to cry in earnest, gazing beseechingly all the while at Snape. That's because he is 16 and has no idea what lies in store. Why, Severus? Why my son? It is too dangerous. This is vengeance for Lucius's mistake. I know it. Snape said nothing. He looked away from the sight of her tears as though they were indecent. But he could not pretend not to hear her. That's why he's chosen Draco, isn't it? She persisted, to punish Lucius. If Draco succeeds, said Snape, still looking away from her, he will be honored above all others. But he won't succeed, sobbed Narcissa. How can he, when the Darth Lord himself... Beltrix gasped, and Narcissa seemed to lose her nerve. I only meant that nobody has yet succeeded. Severus, please, you are, you are, you have always been Draco's favorite teacher. You are Lucius's old friend, I beg you. You are the Dark Lord's favorite, his most trusted advisor. Will you speak to him? Will you persuade him? The Dark Lord will not be persuaded, and I am not stupid enough to attempt it, said Snape flatly. I cannot pretend that the Dark Lord is not angry at Lucius. Lucius was supposed to be in charge. He got himself captured, along with how many others, and failed to retrieve the prophecy into the bargain. Yes, the Dark Lord is angry, Narcissa. Very angry indeed. Then I am right. He has chosen Draco in revenge, choked Narcissa. He does not mean him to succeed. He wants him to be killed trying. When Snape said nothing, Narcissa seemed to lose what little self-restraint she still possessed. Standing up, she staggered to Snape and seized the front of his robes. Her face close to his, her tears falling onto his chest, she gasped. You could do it. You could do it instead of Draco Severus. You would succeed, of course you would. And he would reward you beyond all of us. Snape caught hold of her wrist and removed her clutching hands. Looked down into her tear-strained face, he slowly said, He intends me to do it in the end, I think. But he is determined that Draco should try first. You see, in the unlikely event that Draco succeeds, I shall be able to remain at Hogwarts a little longer, fulfilling my useful role as spy. In other words, it doesn't matter to him if Draco is killed. The Dark Lord is very angry, repeated Snape quietly. He failed to hear the prophecy, and you know as well as I do, Narcissa, he does not forgive easily. She crumpled, falling at his feet, sobbing and moaning on the floor. My son, my only son, you should be proud, said Bellatrix ruthlessly. If I had sons, I would be glad to give them up to the service of the Dark Lord. Narcissa gave a little scream of despair and clutched at her long blonde hair. Snape stooped, seized her by the arms and lifted her up, steered her back under the sofa, then poured her more wine and forced the glass into her hand. Narcissa, that's enough. Drink this. Listen to me. She quieted a little, slopping wine on herself as she took a shaky sip. It might be possible for me to help, Draco. She sat up, her face paper white, her eyes huge. Severus! Oh, Severus, would you help him? Would you look after him and see if he comes to no harm? I can try. She flung her glass away. It skidded across the table as she slid off the sofa into a kneeling position at Snape's feet, seized his hand in both of hers, and pressed her lips to it.
If you are there to protect him, Severus, will you swear it? Will you make the unbreakable vow? The unbreakable vow? Snape's expression was blank, unreadable. Bellatrix, however, let out a cackle of triumphant laughter. Aren't you listening, Narcissa? Oh, he'll try, I'm sure. His usual empty words. The usual slithering out of action. Oh, on the Dark Lord's orders, of course. Snape did not look at Bellatrix. His black eyes were fixed upon Narcissa's tear-filled blue ones as she continued to clutch his hands. Certainly, Narcissa. I shall make the unbreakable vow. He said quietly, perhaps your sister will consent to be our bonder. Bellatrix's mouth fell open. Snape lowered himself so that he was kneeling opposite Narcissa. And beneath Bellatrix's astonished gaze, they grasped right hands. You will need your wand, Bellatrix, said Snape coldly. She drew it, still looking astonished. And you will need to move a little closer, he said. And she stepped forward so that she stood over them and placed the tip of her wand on their linked hands. Narcissa spoke. Will you, Severus, watch over my son Draco as he attempts to fulfill the Dark Lord's wishes? I will, said Snape. A thin tongue of brilliant flame issued from the wand and wound its way up their hands like a red-hot wire. And will you, to the best of your ability, protect him from harm? I will, said Snape. A second tongue of flame shot from the wand and interlinked with the first, making a fine, glowing chain. And should it prove necessary... If it seems Draco will fail, whispered Narcissa, and Snape's hand twitched within hers but did not draw away. Will you carry out the deed that the Dark Lord has ordered Draco to perform? There was a moment's silence. Bellatrix watched her wand upon their clasped hands, her eyes wide. I will, said Snape. Bellatrix's astounded face glowed red in the blaze of a third tongue of flame which shot from the wand, twisted with the others, and bound itself thickly around their clasped hands like a rope like a fiery snake and that closes out chapter two now there's a couple Great. things that i want to talk about in there the first thing i'm going to say is that there on page 31 it supported the the debate that you and i had a little bit about dumbledore and voldemort and how dumbledore really did have a hard time with that duel and said like it even says like that that duel that Dumbledore had with the Dark Lord did shake him, and his reflexes have become slower ever since, and he's since suffered an injury, and we'll find out what that injury is here shortly when you talk about it here in chapter three. But we don't learn exactly how it happens, but we know what injury he's talking about. We don't know that yet. So, anyways, yeah, I just wanted to like bring that up because like it does go to show that Voldemort is is more dangerous than I think even most people realize at this point in time. He shook Dumbledore like into a spot where Dumbledore hasn't been tested in that way in such a long time. Granted, Dumbledore is old. He's much older, so like he's not the young spring chicken he used to be, but that's one thing I wanted to bring up. But some of the biggest things kind of happening here now were like, holy shit, if you're reading for this for the first time, Snape's on Dumbledore's or the Snape's on Voldemort's side. Snape has been duping Dumbledore this entire series. He's been making him think that he's a good guy. And all the times that Ron and Harry have accused Snape of being evil still, they were right, and no one's believed them. This whole time, Snape is acting on Voldemort's orders. He's still a Death Eater. He's still a bad guy. And he's even more dangerous now because like, he, he's trusted so implicitly. Dumbledore trusts him. without Every single time they ask any question about Snape, what does Dumbledore say? I trust Severus. I trust Severus fully. Yeah. I, I, he is my, my full confidence. So you're reading this chapter, you're like, you're playing Dumbledore for a fool. <laughs> Snape is straight yeah. up playing him, man. And on top of that, now we know Draco's been given some sort of task that he's got to complete. 
you know, you can probably guess towards what it is based on the words that are in the chapter. But like now it's that now we're, we're having really big foreshadows all coming up. This chapter was huge for this book. What did you think of it? Yeah, no, that that that's really what I got from it, too. It's funny you said that. Uh, what triggers in my head was there was this guy. Um, it's actually it's uh, a kid, Brandon. Uh, so I know him from back home. He doesn't live down here, actually. It's another Brandon. Josh knows a friend of mine that's branded. This is someone else. All I remember this kid ever saying in my life, <laughs> he said two words probably, like never spoke up in class. <laughs> and he shows up, uh, and this was in college, actually. So, you know, college, you just have, like, your classes whenever, right? Shows up, like, ten minutes left in the class, and they're like, where have you been? Like, just comes in out of nowhere. He goes... So sorry, I was uh, in the financial aid office and there were P-L-A-Y playing games. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's what Snape was doing, man. He's been playing him like a fiddle the entire time. Um, so, but yeah, it really... Uh, also, the way Snape... This is why he's my boy, too. The way he handled Bellatrix there... Like, she kept throwing question after question at him. Um, and, you know, he really just made her almost look stupid with the dude, way he answers yeah, that. Dude. Almost like, you know, you can't bullshit a bullshitter. <laughs> so you're not going to come at me. And the, if you've ever seen the movie Role Models, so don't come in here talking to me about hours. <laughs> so, yeah, it's like you're not coming at me like that. I don't know who you think you're coming over to my house <laughs> acting like you're under control. No. Yeah, I mean, it, it was uh, talk about really starting this book off on a very dark note, but also a note that makes you now question everything. Like I said it a long time ago. Um, one of the quotes that Harry has in this book actually stuck with me even for years of this time that I still remember even to this point. And it was just a, a moment he had somewhere in this book we'll get to at one point, but he was like, it just leads to more questions and questions. And now like something you finally started to kind of get on the side of Snape a little bit, like with Dumbledore backing him up every time. And now you're like, okay, like everything, all loyalty I just had for you just went out the door so yeah man that's that's what i was thinking about that so it definitely sets the tone here for this whole book and the words of sugar ray says all the things that i used to know have gone out the window <laughs> yeah <laughs> mm -hmm. so and yeah man do you want to get us kind of rolling on chapter three do you want to kick us off and read some of those cool big columns in the daily prophet and all that good stuff yeah, man, we're going back to uh, Privet Drive for a little bit here. Sir. Slob Harry, by the way. Felt like he needed <laughs> to clean his room a little a little bit. We'll get into that in a minute. But So kind of a good thing, you know, you remember last summer in my favorite book, remember Harry was definitely kind of very ridicule ridiculed by the prophet. Like most people thought he was a crazy person. Uh, very depressed all the time. Definitely a little bit different vibe uh, this summer we got going on. Two big articles first come out. So the first one is all about, you know, Harry Potter, the chosen one. And we have another one where we really uh, harped on that uh, just a little bit ago was about Scrimmageor. That were, Scrimmageor, how, is that how I say it? The successor? Yep. Yeah. 
Yeah, get, just do a double check on those names there. Make sure discount double check, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Good stuff. Uh, so the first one here. So it says, Harry Potter, the Chosen One. Rumors continue to fly about the mysterious recent disturbance of the Ministry of Magic, during which he who must not be named was cited once more. We're not allowed to talk about it. Don't ask me anything," said one agitated obliviator who refused to give his name as he left the ministry last. Nevertheless, highly placed sources within the ministry have confirmed that the disturbance centered on the fabled Hall of Prophecy. Though ministry spoke wizards have hit hitero uh, refused even to confirm the existence of such a place. A growing number of wizarding community believe that the Death Eaters, now serving sentences in Azkaban for trespass and attempted theft, were attempting to steal a prophecy. The nature of the prophecy is unknown, although speculation is rife that it concerns Harry Potter, the only person ever known to have survived the killing curse, and who is also known to have been at the ministry on the night in question. Some are going so far as to call Potter the Chosen One, believing that the prophecy names him as the only one who will be able to rid us of he who must not be named. The current whereabouts of the prophecy, if it exists, are unknown. Although, continued on page 2, column 5. And then it says, a second newspaper lay beside the first. This one bore the headline. And that's when you're starting to see, you get a little image of the next one that goes into Scrimmageor succeeds Fudge. So we're, you know, we have the tone kind of here. It says... Most of the front page on this article, though, was taken up with large black and white, a large black and white photograph picture of a man with a lion. You described this down to the T earlier. Lion-like mane of thick hair and a rather ravaged face. The picture was moving. The man was waving at the ceiling. Rufus Grimador, previously head of the Aurora office in the Department of Magical Law Enforcement, has succeeded Cornelius Fudge as the Minister of Magic. The appointment has largely been greeted with enthusiasm by the wizarding community. Through rumors of rift between the new minister and Albus Dumbledore, newly reinstated Chief Warlock of Wizengamot surfaced within hours of Scrimmageor taking office. Scrimmageor representatives admitted that he had met with Dumbledore at once upon taking possession of the top job, that he refused to commit on the topics under discussion. Albus Dumbledore is known continued page three column two to the left of this paper sat another which had been folded so that the story bearing the title ministry guarantees students safety was visible the newly appointed minister of magic rufus scrimmador spoke today of the tough new measures taken by the ministry to ensure safety of students returning to hogwarts school of witchcraft and wizardry this autumn for obvious reasons, the ministry will not be going into detail about its stringent new security plans, said the minister, although an insider confirmed that measures include defensive spells and charms, a complex array of counter curses, and a small task force of aurors dedicated solely to the protection of Hogwarts School. Most seem reassured that the new minister's tough stand on student safety, said Miss Augusta Longbottom. My grandson Neville... A good friend of Harry Potter's, incidentally, who fought the Death Eaters alongside him at the Ministry June Inn, but the rest of the story was obscured by the large birdcage standing on top of it. Inside, it was a magnificent snowy owl. Her amber eyes had surveyed the room imperiously, 
and her head swiveling occasion, occasionally to a gaze at her snoring master. And this is where we're going to kind of go in here where he needs to clean his room. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so you kind of get this vibe that's going on right now. It's definitely a lot different uh, than last year because last year there was a lot of criticism going on in the media. Uh, most people even wondered, you know, what really happened um, with Cedric and that sort of thing where the porky took him out of the place and, you know, remember all they really saw was just him saying there was Cedric's body. So you had all these rumors like, did he kill Cedric or like... He just, like, showed back up with him. Is he making up all these stories? Is it in his head? Well, now, like, it's known, right? Um, and kind of uh, just bullet-pointing this, you know, as we're getting to Harry's room here, it described that he had an empty ink bottles everywhere, newspaper articles were thrown, underwear and quills were all over the ground. So just setting the tone here is you can tell he's a little bit more relaxed this summer than he was last summer, I would say. Uh, yeah, and I'll shoot it back over to you, my man. For sure, and I think a lot of it, of like why everything's thrown over the floor and not kind of put away is because he's kind of half in between a state of mind right now, which I'll talk about in just a second. Like He doesn't know if he's going to be staying or if he's going to be going. Like He got a letter, and I'm going to go into that here. The first thing yeah. I wanted to read, though, is just the... Um, the on behalf of the Ministry of Magic, the Protecting Home and Family Against Dark Forces article, because I think it's got some cool stuff in here, and it foreshadows something really important uh, that Chase will actually take us to at the end of this book that I don't want to give too much away of, but I think it's still pretty cool. So, uh, the wizarding community is currently under threat from an organization calling itself the Death Eaters. Observing the following simple security guidelines will help protect you, your family, and your home from attack. Number one, you are advised not to leave the house alone. Number two, Particular care should be taken during the hours of darkness. Whenever possible, arrange to complete journeys before night has fallen. Number three, review the security arrangements around your house, making sure that all family members are aware of emergency measures such as shield and disillusionment charms, and in the case of underage family members, side-along apparition. Agree on, number four, agree on security questions with close friends and family so as to detect death eaters masquerading as others by use of the polyjuice poly potion. See page two. Should you feel that a family member, colleague, friend, or neighbor is acting in a strange manager, in strange manner, contact the magical law enforcement squad at once. They may have been put under the imperious curse. See page four. Number six. Should the dark mark appear over any dwelling place or other building, do not enter, but contact the order office immediately. Unconfirmed sightings suggests that Death Eaters may now be using Inferi. See page 10. Any sighting of an Inferi or an encounter with the same should be reported to the Ministry immediately. So that's that's a little bit about the foreshadow there, that number 7 bullet point talking about yeah. uh, the Inferi. We'll, we'll, we'll see them again later on. I'll say that. That, that doesn't go <laughs> away, so keep those guys in mind. So anyways... Um, now we're going to go into this letter that Harry received from Dumbledore and kind of explains why his room was kind of a mess because he didn't really know what was going on. So this is the letter. It says, Dear Harry, if it is convenient to you, I shall call at number four Privet Drive this coming Friday at 11 p.m. to escort you to the borough where you've been invited to spend the remainder of your school holidays. If you are agreeable, I should also be glad of your assistance in a matter to which I hope you attend on the way to the borough. 
I shall explain this more fully when I see you. Kindly send your answer by return of this owl. Hoping to see you this Friday, I am yours most sincerely, Albus Dumbledore. So, the, we're at this point now, and it says, like, kind of in the next paragraph, like, uh, he, Harry just had not packed. It said, he said it seemed too good to be true that he was going to be rescued from the Dursleys after a mere fortnight of their company. So what that tells us is, like, he's only been back for two weeks from the Hogwarts to the Dursleys. So this is, like, the earliest he's ever been able to leave the Dursleys. So he, he, in his mind, he's like, there's no way. It's too good to be true. He even says, like, you know, he, he couldn't struggle with the feeling that something was going to go wrong. His reply to Dumbledore's letter may have gone astray. Dumbledore could be prevented from collecting him. The letter might turn out to not be from Dumbledore, but a trick, a joke, or a trap. And so Harry could not... He said he could not face packing and then being let down and having to unpack again. So that's kind of why his room's in a big mess of disorder. Because he's kind of like, am I going to go? Am I not going to go? I'm just going to kind of... <laughs> we'll see what happens type of deal. So with that, bro, I'll turn it back over to you. Yeah, man. Uh, so, I mean, it's easy to kind of really jump into... It kind of goes and goes. So once it gets to kind of a big part with what we're going to do with some of Harry's possessions, I'll send it, uh, send it right back over to you. So uh, just jumping in here. So... Albus, uh, going on page 46, just to kind of start there, that's where he really shows up at the door. And uh, I think it's just, this wasn't in the book, but just kind of a thought. I think it was kind of more of a shock to Uncle Vernon and Aunt Petunia. And he really does kind of put them in their place at the same time, too. Uh, so that was, it was kind of a shock just to see um the way they really stood up to him even going to the point of remember order ended where they were standing up to aunt petunia and uncle vernon and no one's really put them in the place um so he goes uh so he comes to the door right and uh so it says a uh, vernon Dur so it says it is a long time since my last visit said dumbledore peering down his crooked nose at uncle vernon i must say you're a uh, Agapanthus are flourish, flourishing. Vernon Dursley said nothing at all. Harry did not doubt that the speech would return to him, and soon the vein pulsing in his uncle's temple was reaching a danger point. But something about Dumbledore seemed to have robbed him temporarily of breath. It might have been that blatant wizardness of his appearance, but it might too have been that even Uncle Vernon could sense that here was a man whom it would be very difficult to bully. So instantly, like, when he shows up at the door, like, and Uncle Vernon, I feel like in the book, remember he was a drill salesman. Like, I kind of always pictured that big guy just goes to the gym all the time. And now, like, instantly, like, he hates the wizarding world. Even going back to Sorcerer's Stone, remember he would see people in black cloaks and robes at work, couldn't stand them. And now this wizard's like standing right in front of him, and even he knows like, okay, I don't, I don't mess with this guy, right? Um, jumping down just a little bit here uh, to bullet point it. So Dumbledore goes into the kitchen, right? And we're trying to get Harry on board and try to ease him in with what's going on. And he just goes. Uh, so Uncle Vernon says, Albus Dumbledore. Uh, well, Albus Dumbledore, said Dumbledore, when Uncle Vernon failed to effect an introduction. We have corresponded, of course. Harry thought this was an odd way of reminding Aunt Petunia that they had once seen her in an exploding letter, but Aunt Petunia did not challenge the term. And this must be your son, Dudley. Dudley had the mo moment peered round the living room, 
room door. His large blonde head rising out of the stripy collar of his pajamas looked oddly disembodied, his mouth gaping in astonishment and fear. Dumbledore waited a moment or two, apparently to see whether any of the Dursleys were going to say anything, but as the silence stretched on, he smiled. Shall we assume that you have invited me into your sitting room? Dudley scrambled out of the way as Dumbledore passed him. Harry, still clutching the telescope and trainers, jumped the last few stairs and followed Dumbledore, who he had settled himself in the armchair nearest to the fire and was taking in surroundings with an expression of benign interest. He looked quite extraordinarily extraordinary out of the place. Here's what's really funny. is like I feel like kind of more we're starting to get that sense of like, yeah, let's grab a drink. Let's do this, Albus Dumbledore. Albus Dumbledore. I picture like him just showing up at the bar in his like wizard robes, like hit me again. <laughs> it's been a bad day. <laughs> they really put me through the ringer here. <laughs> like the portraits just have their mead. And uh, so skipping down just a little bit here, right? So it says he drew his wand so rapidly, Harry barely saw it. With a casual flick, the sofa zoomed forward and knocked the knees out from under all three of the Dursleys, so that they had collapsed onto it in a heap. Another flick of the wand and the sofa zoomed back to its original position. We might as well be comfortable, said Dumbledore pleasantly. As he replaced his wand in his pocket, Harry saw that his hand was blackened and shriveled. It looked as though his flesh had been burned away. Sir, what happened to your... Later, Harry, said Dumbledore. Please sit down. Harry took the remaining armchair, choosing not to look at the Dursleys, who seemed stunned into silence. I would assume that you were going to offer me a refreshment? Dumbledore said to Uncle Vernon, but the evidence so far suggests that that would be optimistic to the point of foolishness. The third witch of the wand and a dusty bottle and five glasses appeared in midair. The bottle tipped and poured generous measure of honey-colored liquid into each of the glasses, which then floated to each person in the room. Madame Rose Murda's finest oak matured mead, said Dumbledore, raising his glass to Harry, who caught hold of his own and sipped. He had never tasted anything like it before, but enjoyed it immensely. The Dursleys, after a quick, scared look at one another, tried to ignore their glasses completely. A difficult feat as they were nudging them gently on the sides of their heads. Harry could not suppress a suspicion that Dumbledore was rather enjoying himself. <laughs> well, Harry, <laughs> and then this is when we're going to kind of get into that, but it definitely gave that vibe of, that's one thing we always talk about, Dumbledore. Like, he's so calm, cool, and collected. And no matter all this stuff that's gone on over the summer, and we even talked about, you know, he's definitely, you know, having to kind of keep control of everything, all the new security that's being brought on over at Hogwarts over here. And you got, I call it like the calamity, like the chaos calamity. It's like breaking through to both worlds. Um, he's just still so calm and collected. I feel and, like it uh, was weird too. Cause like, like I thought, I felt like his interactions with the Dursleys was super mm-hmm. uncharacteristic of how he usually acts towards, but he's usually very like proper and like, like uh, right. always willing to take a back seat. Like, he like walked. He like I actually wrote it down. <laughs> yeah, he didn't like, care. Like guys, like that's a Dumbledore for the first time all series is like almost openly rude. He invites himself into the Dursley's house, tells Uncle Vernon that it's <laughs> best not to say anything at all because he's because remember Uncle Vernon's like I don't mean to be rude and but Dumbledore was like 
Well, unfortunately, rudeness happens, so best to say nothing. <laughs> he basically shuts him <laughs> right. down. And then, like, he conjures up his own chair like he owns living room, pulls a sofa out, knocks the Dursleys' feet <laughs> off of themselves, then makes a drink for everybody, and makes, like, the drinks hit the Dursleys on the head. Like, like he's, like, openly rude for the first time. He's always so polite and so, like, like you know, proper and put together. This is the first time he's, like, like kind of being a dickhead to these guys. It's so... It's so funny. And then we yeah. kind of learn at, like, the last page of this chapter, you know, when he finally says, like, his piece about it, how he actually feels about the Dursleys. But, man, like, it was like, it was, just, it was interesting to see, like, Dumbledore being openly rude for the first time. Yeah. And, th- no, I thought that was a great point. And uh, I think it's because, keep in mind, you know, one thing people forget about is Dumbledore's had to witness all these things as kind of like a guardian figure from afar that can't, like, step in, right? So it's almost like he built up all this animosity for so long, but that's just not the Dumbledore way to just go off on somebody. Right. Like when there's not a conflict in place. So he's just like decided to be an ass out of nowhere. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah. Nice. You got some of the finest mead here, actually. I took it. Took it out of your uh, fridge. <laughs> yeah. Oh, did you get that from drill sales? Mr. This actually uh, brings Mr. out Green? a really great question. I'm going to bring out the great debate card, bro. I have a really oh, oh, I have okay. a really crazy question now. And maybe it's been answered. Maybe I can do some more research on it. I didn't plan on using this card, but I just thought about mm-hmm. it. Why are some people punished for using magic in front of muggles, but Dumbledore is just doing all this stuff in front of the Dursleys and, like, it's cool. Like... Like, you're not supposed to be using... Like, you can use magic after a certain age. That's fine. But you're not, you're still not supposed to use it in front of muggles. It's supposed to be, like, a statute of secrecy. <laughs> He's literally, like, whipping up a bunch of shit in front of the Dursleys. Like, am I wrong for thinking that? Like, what in the world is happening? No, definitely. It's like, is that, I, is that a plot hole? Like, I don't know, man. <laughs> like, what do you think? The only thing I could think of is because they've already seen magic before, um, given, you know, going all the way back to Prisoner of Azkaban, where... You know, wasn't it like Dudley's aunt is really? Yeah, what it was, so large that's Marge. a good point. I guess it's it's very possible that because they left Harry and like they they were obviously raising him that they have to mm-hmm. be like uh, they have to be like they know of magic, right? So it's not as secret or shocked him. I still I can't imagine like the ministry being cool with just whipping up all the shit in front of them. Like no problem, <laughs> man. Like yeah, so that, yeah, maybe yeah, it's probably not a plot hole. I'm probably like you know trying to reach too far for that one, but. Yeah, I guess there must be a thing where, like, if because obviously there are uh, Muggleborns, like Hermione, like, obviously Hermione's parents must know about magic because, like, she's, you know, mm-hmm. a witch. So, I guess, like, the whole main thing for Statue of Secrecy is to kind of not show that the wizarding world exists to Muggles, but if these Muggles have wizarding children that they're responsible for, I guess there's no reason to keep it a secret. So, maybe that's why, but still, I just find it very hard to believe that they would just be cool with, like... Dumbledore whacking their knees out with the sofa and banging them on the head with drinks and like just acting like he owns the place. I don't know, man. It's something I wanted to bring up, but that's that's honestly that was all my great debate. I, like, I, it seems like we're on the same page, but definitely something I wanted to bring up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Quick um, comment on that. Like, it's here's another thing too. Like, yes, the Dursleys are horrible and they get everything that they deserve, definitely. But at the same time, think about it. If like you're in, say, if they were good people. And you're seeing it from the Dursley's perspective. 
Because every time they run into some wizard, some shit happens to their house. They're not fucking invited, ever. Like, Arthur, like, blew, like, his whole chimney out yeah. last time he was there. Like, every time, like, something involves magic, it's gone horribly wrong for them. Like, remember <laughs> Uncle Vernon couldn't even make that sale with that guy going way back? And they had to, like, try to keep making excuses as he was making a sale. I think it was, like, Chamber of Secrets. It was, it was Chamber was, like, of Secrets. Oh, this, like, yep. Yeah, so it's it's just like every single time, and then now you got like the the most known wizard of all time. Like everyone knows who this is, and he's like coming in just being an asshole. He's like, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Don't worry, Uncle Vernon. I went ahead and uh, you don't have to worry about making this one. I actually purchased it at the local grocery with your paycheck <laughs> that you had on your refrigerator door. That commission check you made last week. Paid for all the meat here, some of the finest whiskey. That that stimulus, <laughs> no. you got the little stimulus there. The stimulus, we took ahead and took care of that <laughs> stimulus check, man. We just marked it right off your IRS. Oh, uh, <laughs> Great stuff, man. Awesome. Yeah, man. But I'll, I'll let you keep uh, taking it. You were knocking it out of the park. Sounds good, man. So you kind of mentioned this quickly. I did want to read the paragraph where it was mentioned because it is a foreshadow on page uh, forty-eight regarding um, Dumbledore's the hand that says um, he as he places one in his pocket. Harry saw that his hand was blackened and shriveled. It looked as though his flesh had been burned away. And that's when he says, sir, what happened to you? And he says, later, Harry, please sit down. So, like, that's a big foreshadow about his hand. Like, what actually occurred, we'll find out later in the book. But, you know, Dumbledore has been pretty much untouchable this whole series. And now this is the first time you see him, like, openly wounded by something. And we'll find out yeah. what that is. So, in page Wait, four. Uh, just yeah. thing I want to say. Sorry not to interrupt you there. For sure. Um. I was just going to say, so, and we don't bring up differences in the movie and stuff, but um, <laughs> I do got to say this because uh, about that. Um, but yeah, you definitely, uh, one thing I did learn from this book, you were right. So yeah, Dumbledore is no spring chicken anymore. My only like wonder is <clears throat> you got to think, I guess, like some of the stress he has to deal with also probably takes a toll on that. And then also having to take in take into account harry because going back to goblet of fire you know and he was trying to figure out the way to deal with it when he was most stressed out after hearing about flesh blood and bone but i was going to bring up this point because i was really irritated with the movie about this this isn't why at all but they tried to make it look like the black hand was from where he swatted away the dragon fire thing the fire snake which wasn't what happened at all <laughs> but they tried to make it look like which especially if you have never done any research on the books ever but they tried to make like the black hand was because aiding to what you're saying here because i agree the fight definitely took a lot out of them but they tried to make it give a entirely new reason like it's because like he hit the dragon <laughs> the snake the fire snake that Voldemort like conjured with his wand so it made his hand like burn up and I don't want our any of our audience members ever getting misconstrued by that. If they read the books, they wouldn't. But yeah, if, you, if, you're, if they only watch the movie, then maybe I haven't. I haven't watched the movie yet, so I, I haven't. Yeah. I don't remember that part. I'll have to go back and watch it when we get closer to the end of Half Blood Prince, and then obviously we'll have our stuff to say on our differences episodes, like we always do. But I haven't. I haven't seen that yet, so I'm gonna keep an eye out for it when we when we jump yeah. into that movie. There. Yeah, so. man. But back to you. That's just why I'm saying it's. I haven't seen that movie in a long time too but i do remember the hand part in that movie and if you go back to even like order of the phoenix like that's how they're trying to like kind of play it in 
But no, it's very different than that. <laughs> That's not what happened at all. Uh, back to you, Jay Nelly. For sure. So on page 49, we learn that Sirius's will was discovered and he left everything to Harry, including number 12 Grimald Place. Now, it, it kind of actually runs into an issue here. And I, so what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to read this all the way through the last three pages to the end of the chapter here. It says, um, you, uh, Uncle Vernon says, You've been left a house? said Uncle Vernon greedily, his small eyes narrowing, but nobody answered him. You can keep using it as headquarters, said Harry. I don't care. You can have it. I don't really want it. Harry never wanted to set foot in number 12 Grimald Place again if he could help it. He thought he would be haunted forever by the memory of Sirius prowling its dark, musty rooms alone, in prison without the place he wanted so desperately to leave. That is generous, said Dumbledore. We have, however, vacated the building temporarily. Why? said Harry. Well, said Dumbledore, ignoring the mutterings of Uncle Vernon, who was now being wrapped smartly over the head by the persistent glass of mead... Black family tradition decreed that the house was handed down to the direct line to the next male within the name of Black. Sirius was the very last of the line as his younger brother Regulus predeceased him and both were childless. While his will makes it perfectly plain that he wants you to have the house, it is nevertheless possible that some spell or enchantment has been set upon the place to ensure that it cannot be owned by anyone other than a pureblood. A vivid image of the shrieking, spinning portrait of Sears' mother that hung in the hall of Number 12 Grimald Place flashed into Harry's mind. I bet there has, he said. Quite, said Dumbledore. And if such an enchantment exists, the ownership of the house is most likely to pass to the eldest of Sirius's living relatives, which would mean his cousin, Bellatrix Lestrange. Without realizing what Harry was doing, he sprang to his feet, the telescope and trainers in his lap rolled across the floor. Bellatrix Lestrange? Sirius's killer? Inherit his house? No, he said. Well, obviously we would prefer that she didn't get it either, said Dumbledore calmly. The situation is fraught with complications. We do not know whether the enchantments we ourselves have placed on it, for example, making it unplottable, will hold now that the ownership has passed from Sirius's hands. It might be that Bellatrix will arrive on the doorstep at any moment. Naturally, we have had to move out until such time we have clarified the position. But how are you going to find out if I'm allowed to own it? Fortunately, said Dumbledore, there is a simple test. He placed his empty glass on a small table beside his chair, but before he could, anything, could do anything else, Uncle Vernon shouted, Will you get these ruddy things off us? Harry looked around, and all three of the Dursleys were cowering with their arms over their heads as their glasses bounced up and down their skulls, their contents flying everywhere. Oh, I'm so sorry, said Dumbledore politely as he raised his wand again. All three glasses vanished, but it would have been better manners to drink it, you know. It looked as though Uncle Vernon was bursting with a number of unpleasant retorts, but he merely shrank back into the cushions with Aunt Petunia and Dudley and said nothing, keeping his small piggy eyes on Dumbledore's wand. You see, Dumbledore said, turning back to Harry again and speaking as though Uncle Vernon had not uttered a word, if you've indeed inherited the house, you've also inherited... He flicked his wand for a fifth time. There was a loud crack and a house up appeared. With a snout for a nose, giant bat ears and enormous bloodshot eyes, crouching on the Dursley shag carpet and covered in grimy rags. Aunt Petunia let out a hair-raising shriek. Nothing this filthy had entered her house in living memory. Dudley drew his bare pink feet off the floor and sat with them raised almost above his head as though he was, the creature might run up his pajama trousers. And Uncle Vernon bellowed, What the hell is that? Creature, finished Dumbledore. Creature won't! Creature won't! Creature won't! Croaked the house elf quite as loudly as Uncle Vernon, stamping his long, gnarled feet and pulling his ears. Creature belongs to Miss Bellatrix. Oh yes, creature belongs to the Blacks. Creature wants his new mistress. Creature won't go to the Prouderbat. Creature won't. Creature won't, won't, won't. As you can see, Harry, 
said Dumbledore loudly over Creature's continued croaks of won't, won't, won't. Creature is showing a certain reluctance to pass onto your ownership. I don't care, said Harry again, looking with disgust at the writhing, stamping house elf. I don't want him. Won't, 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 won't. You would prefer him to pass into the ownership of Bellatrix Lestrange? Bearing in mind that he has lived at the headquarters of the Over Order of the Phoenix for the past year? Won't, won't, won't. Harry stared at Dumbledore. He knew that creature could not be permitted to go and live with Bellatrix Lestrange, but the idea of owning him, having responsibility for the creature that betrayed Sirius, was repugnant. Give him an order, said Dumbledore. If he has passed into your ownership, he will have to obey. If not, then we shall have to think of some other means of keeping him from his rightful mistress. Won't, 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 won't. Creature's voice had risen to a scream. Harry could think of nothing to say except, Creature, shut up! It looked for a moment as though Creature was going to choke. He grabbed his throat, mouth still working furiously, his eyes bulging. After a few seconds of frantic gulping, he threw himself face forward onto the carpet, Aunt Petunia whimpered, and beat the floor with his hands and feet, giving himself over to a violent, but entirely silent, tantrum. Well, that simplifies matters, said Dumbledore cheerfully. It seems that Sirius knew what he was doing. You are the rightful owner of number 12 Grimald Place and of Creature. Do I have to keep him with me? Harry asked, looking aghast as Creature thrashed around at his feet. Not if you don't want to, said Dumbledore. If I may make a suggestion, you could send him to Hogwarts to work in the kitchen there. And that way, the other house elves could keep an eye on him. Yeah, said Harry Leith. Yeah, I'll do that. Uh, Creature, I want you to go to Hogwarts and work in the kitchens there with the other house elves. Creature, who was now lying flat on his back with his arms and legs in the air, gave Harry one upside-down look of deepest loathing, and with another loud crack, vanished. Good, said Dumbledore. There was also the matter of the hippogriff Buckbeak. Hagrid has been looking after him since Sirius has died, but Buckbeak is yours now, so if you prefer to make other arrangements... No, said Harry at once. He can stay with Hagrid. I think Buckbeak would prefer that. Hagrid will be delighted, said Dumbledore, smiling. He is thrilled to see Buckbeak again, and incidentally, we have decided, in the interest of Buckbeak's safety, to rechristen him Witherwings for the time being, though I doubt the Ministry would ever guess he is the hippogriff they once sent him to death. Now, Harry, is your trunk packed? Uh, doubtful that I would turn up, suggested Dumbledore shrewdly. I'll just go and, uh, finish off, said Harry hastily, hastily hurrying to pick up his fallen telescope and trainers. It took him over a little ten minutes to track everything down that he needed, at last, he had managed to extract his invisibility cloak from under the bed, screwed up the back top of his jar into the colored ink, and forced the lid of his trunk shut on the cauldron. Then, heaving his trunk in one hand and holding Hedwood's cage in the other, he made his way back downstairs. He was disappointed to discover that Dumbledore was not waiting in the hall, which meant that he had to return to the living room. Nobody was talking. Dumbledore was humming quietly, apparently quite at ease, but the atmosphere was thicker than cold custard, and Harry did not dare look at the Dursleys as he said, Professor, I'm ready now. Good, said Dumbledore. Just one last thing, then, and he turned to speak to the Dursleys once more. As you will no doubt be aware, Harry comes of age in a year's time. No, said Aunt Petunia, speaking for the first time since Dumbledore's arrival. I'm sorry, said Dumbledore politely. No, he doesn't. He's a month younger than Dudley, and Dudders doesn't turn 18 until the year after next. Ah, said Dumbledore pleasantly, but in the wizarding world, we come of age at 17. Uncle Vernon muttered, preposterous, but Dumbledore ignored him. Now, as you already know, the wizard called Lord Voldemort has returned to this country. The wizarding community is currently in a state of open warfare. Harry, whom Lord Voldemort has already attempted to kill on a number of occasions, is even greater danger now than the day when I left him upon your doorstep 15 years ago with a letter explaining about his parents' murder and expressing the hope that you would care for him as though he were your own. Dumbledore paused, 
and although his voice remained light and calm, and he gave no obvious sign of anger, Harry felt a kind of chill emanating from him and noticed that the Dursleys drew very close together. You did not do as I asked. You have never treated Harry as a son. He has known nothing but neglect and often cruelty at your hands. The best that can be said is that he has at least escaped the appalling damage you have inflicted upon the unfortunate boy sitting between you. Both Aunt Petunia and Uncle Vernon looked round instinctively as though expecting to see someone other than Dudley squeeze between them. Us? Mistreat Dudders? What do you... began Uncle Vernon furiously, but Dumbledore raised a finger for silence, a silence which fell as though he had struck Uncle Vernon dumb. The magic I evoked 15 years ago means that Harry has powerful protection while he can still call this house home. However, however miserable he has been here, however unwelcome, however badly treated, you have at least, grudgingly, allowed him house room. This magic will cease to operate the moment Harry turns 17. In other words, at the moment he becomes a man. I ask only this, that you allow Harry to return once more to this house before his 17th birthday, which will ensure that the protection continues until that time. None of the Dursleys said anything. Dudley was frowning, though, as still trying to work out when he had ever been mistreated. Uncle Vern looked as though he had something stuck in his throat, and Aunt Petunia, however, was oddly flushed. Well, Harry, time for us to be off, said Dumbledore at last, standing up and straining his long black cloak. Until we meet again, he said to the Dursleys, who looked as though that moment could wait forever as far as they were concerned, and after doffing his hat, he swept from the room. Bye, said Harry hastily to the Dursleys and filed Dumbledore, who paused beside Harry's trunk upon which Hagrid's cave was perched. We do not want to be encumbered by these just now, he said, pulling out his wand again. I shall send them to the burrow to await us there. However, I would like you to bring your invisibility cloak just in case. So Harry extracted his cloak from the trunk with some difficulty, trying not to show Dumbledore the mess within. When he had finally stuffed it inside pocket of his jacket, Dumbledore waved his wand, and the trunk Cajun head vanished, and Dumbledore waved his wand again, and the front door opened into the cool, misty darkness. And now, Harry, let us step out into the night and pursue that flighty, temptress adventure. And that closes out chapter three. Now couple things in here big foreshadows as well this that last page he said like yeah and, uh, until we meet again talking about Dur Dumbledore to the Dursleys and the Dursleys like wishing that that could be forever well you know what Dursleys may get their wish after all <laughs> I'll say that there um on top of that he we get uh, a little bit of that more of that foreshadow for that protection that Harry receives and now we know when it exactly expires it's the moment he turns 17 that comes into play big and the next book so big moments yeah. there as well and then obviously the whole deal with creature in the house going into uh harry's possession from sirius's will that's going to be really play a bigger role later as well into the series mainly into deathly hallows so what did you kind of right. think about that chapter what are some big takeaways that you had yeah i mean it's it's all just uh really huge foreshadowing with all that stuff there it almost makes you wonder as far as when that love protection spell when it expires like how much at risks are the is the dursley family because you think i mean people know i mean no one really cares too much about them but like people know like harry was housed there so it makes you almost like even question like how much safety concerns are they for themselves um but yeah i mean this is Really, I mean, as far as I, I, he's basically almost like done with them. Like he's not done with them yet, but this is kind of like, <laughs> like one, the Dursleys are 
waking up to get what they deserve. At this other point is everything just kind of like you don't get closure on Privet Drive. It's just like see a Privet Drive. <laughs> gave it a good run is basically what it was. And yeah, I mean, uh, you know, um, this is where you really do have kind of that different vibe that's going to start going on because you have that connection. Remember last year, you know, you never had that connection with Dumbledore because he avoided him. And then as far as like even Goblet of Fire and stuff like, you know, he was dealing with the Triwizard Tournament and the Mystery of Magic there. And Dumbledore is always, you know, we've talked about he's going this place or that place, usually would show up at the last minute. This is the first time we're really going to actually see it's really like a father-son journey that they kind of set off on their path here. So, yeah, man. Uh, anything else you wanted to say about uh, Chapter 3, though? Nope, not at all. I'll let you go ahead and bring us into uh, Chapter 4 and, and start us off there, man. Yeah, man. So, a uh, first thing I thought was really cool uh, is, you know, before they've traveled places with port keys or, you know, we've seen the flu powder, that sort of thing. I think this is the first book where, like, I felt like apparitions were just all the time because, you know, Dumbledore's there. So, I mean, it's kind of like, why walk when you can take a car, right? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so that was that was pretty cool. And it definitely gives you, like, the whole, like, wow, like, instant Goku transmission thing. Um, <laughs> and just, like, starting this out here. So it, Also, is to that point, I bit... just wanted to put one other thing out there. Remember that, yeah. that pamphlet that the ministry gave out said, hey, Use sidelong apparition, like if in the chance you've got underage wizards with you. Well, we get to see that right away. Right. Like we get to see that like immediately. So yeah, right away. <laughs> Go ahead. That's all I wanted to point <laughs> that, out. That was awesome. Uh, yeah, and the first thing I really had was uh, just to kind of play out this scene here because it is really cool. Because Dumbledore just kind of is. You can tell he's thinking about everything as far as the whole perspective, and Harry doesn't even get it, and so. <laughs> He goes, you are with me, said Dumbledore simply. This will do, Harry. He came to an abrupt halt at the end of Privet Drive. You have not, of course, passed your apparition test, he said. No, said Harry. I, I thought you had to be 17. You do, said Dumbledore. So, you will need to hold on to my arm very tightly. My left, if you don't mind. As you have noticed, my one arm is a little fragile at the moment. <laughs> Harry gripped Dumbledore's pro-offered <laughs> forearm. Very good, said Dumbledore. Well, here we go. Harry felt Dumbledore's arm twist away from him and redoubled his grip. The next thing he knew, everything went black. He was being pressed very hard from all directions. He could not breathe. And there were iron bands tightening around his chest. His eyeballs were being forced back into his head. His eardrums were being pushed deeper into his skull. And then he gulped great lungfuls of cold night air and opened his screaming eyes. He felt as though he had just been forced through a very tight rubber tube. It was a few seconds before he realized that Privet Drive had vanished. He and Dumbledore were now standing in what appeared to be a deserted village square in the center of what stood an old war memorial in a few benches. His comprehension catching up with, the, with his scenes, Harry realized that he had just apparated for the first time in his life. So it's pretty cool. It's like that instant transmission thing. And, uh, you know, I still remember, like, when I was reading this book as a kid, 
and it felt so different from the previous ones because everything happens so fast and they're like almost like jumping around with where they go and like it's like the father-son vacation for the entire book is basically what it is. I thought it was cool too. Um, like he had like a like Dumbledore like it's been acting very, very uh, self-confident. I'll say because like, like what you were talking about yeah. at the very beginning, he said he, Dumbledore gives Harry permission to use magic if they're attacked, and like he says, I don't think you need to worry about being attacked tonight though. <laughs> Why not, sir? Yeah, because you're with me. Exactly. Like all right, like all right, Dumbledore, talk your talk, boy. Talk your talk. <laughs> So I thought that was cool, but go ahead and continue on. <laughs> yeah, no, that was that was great. Yeah, that was perfect. Um, and you're kind of already like getting this vibe of like where they're at, like what's going on. He just brought me to this random, random place, almost like the same kind of deal uh, when you know they went out to Twelve Grimwald's place. Like it's kind of like a strange area, but at least like they kind of gave me some sort of idea. Like I'm getting out of here. Dumbledore just like grabs his arm, tells him about the will, and he's like, "Yeah, I just showed up. <laughs> yeah, just follow me. I got some stops I need to make along the way." Um, and this is when it kind of hits you, right? Yeah, when you start kind of understanding uh, what's going on. So, going to page, uh, I think it's fifty-nine, kind of in the middle here, is kind of when we start getting the sort of like idea everything's kind of coming into place and it's it about said, like, like the scar like his scar not hurting that part yeah 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 yeah, 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 yeah yep yeah yeah just because it plays a big piece yeah. and then from there i'm gonna let you take it into you know we're trying to prepare for the school year but we gotta gotta make some recruits along the way for sure, for sure. <laughs> yeah so uh it said uh harry he goes so tell me harry said dumbledore your scar has it been hurting at all? Harry raised a hand unconsciously to, to his forehead and rubbed the lightning-shaped mark. No, he said. And I've been wondering about that. I, I thought it would be burning all the time now. Voldemort's getting, getting so powerful again. He glanced up at Dumbledore and saw that he was wearing a satisfied expression. I, on the other hand, thought otherwise, said Dumbledore. Lord Voldemort has finally realized the dangerous access to his thoughts and feelings you have been enjoying. It appears that he is now employing a clemency against you. Well, I'm not complaining, said Harry, who missed neither the disturbing dreams nor the startling flashes of insight into Voldemort's mind. They turned a corner passing a telephone box and a bus shelter. Harry looked sideways at Dumbledore again. Professor. Harry? Uh, where, er, where exactly are we? This, Harry, is a charming village of Boudelay Baberton. And what are we doing here? Ah, yes, I haven't told you, said Dumbledore. Well, I have lost count on the number of times I've said this in recent years, but we are once again one member of staff short. We are here to persuade an old colleague of mine to come out of retirement and return to Hogwarts. How can I help with that, sir? Oh, I think we'll find a use for you, said Dumbledore vaguely. Left here, Harry. They proceeded up a steep, narrow street lined with houses. All the windows were dark. All the windows were dark. The odd chill that had lain, oh, laid over Privet Drive for two weeks persisted here, too. Thinking of Dementors, Harry cast a look over his shoulder and grasped his wand reassuringly in his pocket. Professor, 
Why couldn't we just apparate directly into your old colleague's house? Because it would be quite rude as kicking down the front door, <laughs> said Dumbledore. Courtesy dictates that we offer fellow wizards the opportunity of denying us entry. In any case, most wizarding, wizarding dwellings are magically protected from unwanted apparators. At Hogwarts, for instance, you can't apparate anywhere inside the buildings or grounds, said Harry quickly. Hermione Granger told me. The church clock chimed midnight behind them. Harry wondered why Dumbledore did not consider it rude to call on his old colleague so late. But now that the conversation had been established, he had more pressing questions to ask. And then, uh, so I'm going to let you kind of jump in from there, because this is when we're going to get into that new recruit we're going to start uh start meeting for sure here soon yeah I, I had bolded up to that point i was like yeah they're there to, to persuade an old colleague to come out of the retirement here we go baby yeah. so there you go man uh, i do think that this is uh page 61 we asked dumbledore about his hand and he like you know tells him mm-hmm. again that's the story for another time but i also thought this was interesting too when harry actually asks dumbledore about rufus scrimmager and what he thinks about rufus scrimmager and so what he actually says about Rufus Scrimmager, he says, uh, Do you think he's good? asked Harry. An interesting question, said Dumbledore. He is able, certainly. More decisive and a more forceful person there than Cornelius. Yes, but I meant, I know what you meant. Rufus is a man of action, and having fought dark wizards for most of his working life, does not underestimate Lord Voldemort. And like Harry waited, but Dumbledore did not say anything else. So like it's like they... So even like even this like he doesn't seem to really like Scrimmage either. He just says you know he seems capable. He does not underestimate Lord Voldemort, which is you know in and of itself a decent thing, right? Um, going on to page uh, sixty-one, continued on here. There's a foreshadow about the it's at the very bottom of this talking about safety questions and how like Dumbledore is kind of like well I know obviously you didn't take that seriously because you didn't ask me about my favorite jam color you know (laughs) but like so I did think that is a bit of a foreshadow though just because like next book especially when they leave Privet Drive there's a lot of uh, questions about you know imposters and stuff so I'll say that but I Mm. also thought it was cool that Dumbledore's favorite jam flavor is raspberry so if anyone wanted to know that there's a little interesting tidbit for you (laughs) anyways on page uh, 62 the third and fourth paragraph, there's some little good foreshadowing here talking about the Inferi. So, uh, the Inferi. Mm-hmm. So, er, uh, right, said Harry. Well, on that leaflet, it said something about Inferi. What exactly are they? The leaflet wasn't very clear. Dumbledore replied, they are corpses. Dead bodies that have been bewitched to do a dark wizard's bidding. Inferi have not been seen for a long time. However, not since Voldemort was last powerful. He killed enough people to make an army of them, of course. This is a place, Harry, just here. So now we get an idea of what uh, we get a cli- clearer idea of what Inferi are. So they're dead bodies that have been bewitched to do a dark wizard's b- bidding, which is kind of morbid and screwed up. But you know, hey, it's Lord Voldemort. What the hell do you expect? So, yeah. uh, page yeah. sixty-three, in the second paragraph here. Uh, this is when they always kind of walk into the the house, and this this is the scene that meets their eyes when they go into Dumbledore's friend's house. A scene of total devastation met their eyes. A grandfather clock lay splintered at their feet, its face cracked, its pendulum lying a little farther away like a drop sword. A piano was on its side, its keys strewn across the floor. The wreckage of a fallen chandelier glittered nearby. Cushions lay deflated, feathers oozing from slashes in their sides. Fragments of glass and china lay like powder over everything. 
Dumbledore raised his wand even higher so that light was thrown upon the walls where something darkly red and glutinous was spattered over the wallpaper. And Harry's small intake of breath made Dumbledore look around. Not pretty, is it? He said heavily. Yes, something horrible has happened here. So that's just like that's the first thing that they see. They walk into this guy's house and it's just total devastation, destruction everywhere. And it's it's funny because like when I read it for the first time, I really you know believed it. <laughs> I was like, oh shit, they got yeah. they got to him first. I was like, they got to him first, man, dang. But then we actually uh, get to see exactly what ended up happening because on page sixty three, a little down the way, uh, Dumbledore has a has a hunch and he shoves his wand into something that looks like a chair. And that chair says, ow! So, it was all a ruse. But basically, what Slughorn, like, like this guy who is going to be introduced here, his name is Horace Slughorn, he it was basically trying to throw Dumbledore off. He didn't want Dumbledore to come and try to convince him. He wanted it to make it look like he had been taken away or kidnapped and dragged away, so that way he could continue living his life of comfort. But, anyways, uh, Dumbledore tells Horace he knew it was a ruse because there was no dark mark. He said if the Death Eaters had come calling and kidnapped you, they would have sent the dark mark above your house. And he's like, ah, shit, right. the dark mark, I forgot it. <laughs> ah. like, 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 you know, just, he's so, he's funny, man. I like, I like Horace in a way. I also don't like him in some other ways, but I thought it was funny. He's like uh, that he, guy. He's, yeah. See, what's funny is I feel like the two images, like the image we're going to get here, through like the whole first part of the conversation is like an entirely different view of Horace Slughorn than who he actually is. Like he's like very out for himself and very like, hey man, like almost like Stephen A. Smith acting like he's buddy buddy with everybody. Like, oh yeah, I was in shoot with this person this weekend. I mean, you know, we go way back. <laughs> Shut the f up, dude. Yeah, man. Keep it's, going. All all you, my man. It's true though. No, you're right. He does. He has two stark different personalities, but. In the words of Chase, we don't like to bring up differences, but in the movie, <laughs> no. So in the movie, dude, I didn't. I did. This is one of the very few casting things I did not like at all. It did not even look yeah, like like all. Horace Slughorn. Didn't act like Horace Slughorn. It was just a bad portrayal of character in the movie. But that's all I'll say about that. Uh, anyways, <laughs> it, I think we got a lot of problems. Yeah, already. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's that's so crazy, right? Yeah. Uh, Page 65, we learned that it was dragon's blood on the wall. If you guys remember, remember way back in mm-hmm. Sorcerer's Stone, I gave a quick interesting fact about the known uses of dragon blood. There's 12 of them, but only like four were confirmed like in terms of written out. So um, I guess we can add uh, fake death to uh, one of the uses. No, but, <laughs> there you go, man. Stage a scene. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, page 66, awesome. Dumbledore introduces Harry to Horace, and like Horace gets defensive and tells Dumbledore the answer is no. Like... So we already know, like, Dumbledore is basically... Horace had an idea that Dumbledore would try to come and recruit him, basically. And basically, like, he realized he was going to try to use Harry to get him to do it. He's like, oh, ho, 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 I see what you're doing, Dumbledore. Like, so I <laughs> thought that was pretty cool. But uh, on, uh, there's a foreshadow here. There's a slash foreshadow. I'll let Chase take over. Is uh, on page 67. I'll read the last paragraph on page 67 through the first paragraph on page 68. So... Um, Anyways, we'll start here. You're quite right. Ah, you're quite right," said Dumbledore serenely, shaking back his sleeve to reveal the tips of those burned and blackened fingers. The sight of them made the back of Harry's neck prickle unpleasantly. I am undoubtedly slower than I was, but on the other hand, he shrugged and spread his hands wide as though to say that age had its compensations. And Harry noticed a ring on his uninjured hand that he had never seen Dumbledore wear before. It was large 
rather clumsily made of what looked like gold and was set with a heavy black stone that cracked down the middle. Slughorn's eyes lingered for a moment on the ring too, and Harry saw a tawny frown momentarily crease his wide forehead. So that's just a big paragraph of foreshadow right there about the injured hand, about the ring, about the use of mm-hmm. it, and how like Slughorn realized what it was. And he said there, there was a crease of a frown on his forehead, because remember, there's something really important that they need to get from Slughorn way later in the book that I won't really get into now. But so it's like, there's a lot of foreshadow in just that small paragraph that I read right there. And uh, with that, I'll get it back over to Chase here on page 68, and I'll let him take it away. Yeah, uh, no, that was that was a huge foreshadow. Uh, what I'll kind of take from here is it kind of plays into the role where you're kind of seeing him. Like, at first you saw him very taken aback, like, I'm not taking this job, Albus. Like, what are you doing in my house? Like, I can't believe I didn't put the dark mark over the roof there. And he kind of, like, switches character a little bit, like, all of a sudden. And uh, some of it might be because maybe, like, he can reminisce a little bit. Because keep in mind, this guy, remember Albus said that we brought up to you, you know, he's going to get him out of retirement. So, like, he was there before. So he kind of sees a little bit of Lily in Harry for a little bit. But it goes back into his pompousness because... If you've ever met one of those people, whether it's like a boss or something, and all they want to talk about is their self, like that's this guy. That is Slughorn down to a T. Like everything is like about him. Like he is the guy. Um, I'm just going to take this from page 69 all the way into it's page 74. Uh, and then I'm going to let uh, Josh take us from there and then uh, to the next chapter. Uh, but you're going to see, he sees a little bit of Lily and Harry, and it, it, all of a sudden he just switches. <laughs> like, it's like an alarm clock. Like, I'm here, guys. I'm here, boys. Yeah. Don't don't let the party get started till I walk in. <laughs> yeah. So I'm being 69 here. So it says, Harry merely looked at Slughorn. Slughorn's watery eyes slid over Harry's scar, this time taking in the rest of his face. You look very like your father. Yeah, I've been told, said Harry. Except for your eyes, you've got... My mother's eyes, yeah. Harry had heard it so often, he found it was a bit wearing. (laughs) Yes, well, (laughs) you shouldn't have favorites as a teacher, but of course, she was one of mine, your mother. Slughorn added in answer to Harry's questioning look. Lily Evans, one of the brightest I ever taught. Vivacious, you know, charming girl. I used to tell her she ought to have been in my house. Very cheeky answers I used to get back to. Which was your house? I was head of Slytherin, says Slughorn. Oh, oh now. He went on quickly, seeing the expression on Harry's face and wagging a stubby finger at him. Don't go holding that against me. You'll be Gryffindor like her, I suppose. Yes, it usually goes in the families. Not always, though. Ever heard of Sirius Black? (laughs) You must have done. (laughs) Been in the papers for the last couple years. Died a few weeks ago. (laughs) Literally, like, bringing all this back up in front of him, man. Oh, this guy is something else. It was as though an invisible hand had twisted Harry's intestines and held them tight. Well, anyways, he was a big pal of your father's at school. The whole black family had been in my house. But Sirius, 
He ended up as a Gryffindor. Shame. He was a talented boy. I got his brother Regulus when he came along, but I'd have liked the set. He sounded like an enthusiastic collector who had been outbid at auctions. <laughs> Apparently lost in memories, he gazed at the opposite wall, turning idly on the spot to ensure an even heat on his backside. Your mother was a muggle-born, of course. Couldn't believe it when I found out. Thought she must have been pure blood. she was so good. One of my best friends is muggle-born, said Harry. She's the best in our year. Funny how that sometimes happens, isn't it? Said Slughorn. Not really, Harry, coldly. Slughorn looked down at him in surprise. You mustn't think I'm prejudiced, he said. No, no, no. Haven't I just said your mother was one of my all-time favorite students? And there was a Dirk Cresswell in that year after her. Now he's head of the Goblin Liaison Force, of course. Another muggle-born. Very gifted. Very gifted student, and it still gives me excellent inside information on the goings of Gringotts. He bounced up and down a little, smiling in a self-satisfied way, and pointed at the many glittering, glittering photos photograph frames on the dresser each peopled with tiny moving occupants all ex-students all signed you'll notice barnabas cuff editor of the daily prophet he's always interested to hear my take on the day's news uh a brucius flume of honey dukes a hamper every birthday i always get that and all because i was able to give him an introduction to Searson harkis who gave him the first job and at the back, you'll see here, if you just crane your neck around, that's Wingog Jones, who, of course, was captain of the Hollyhead Harpies. People are always astonished to hear I'm on the first name terms with the Harpies. I get free tickets whenever I want them. This thought seemed to cheer, cheer him up enormously. And all these people know where to find you. Send you stuff, you know. Ask Harry who could not help wondering why the Death Eaters had not yet tracked down Slughorn if hampers of sweets, Quidditch tickets, and visitor craving his advice and opinions could find him. The smile slid from Slughorn's face as quickly as the blood from the walls. Of course not, he said, looking down at Harry. I have been out of touch with everybody for a year. Harry had the impression that the words shocked Slughorn himself. He looked quite unsettled for a moment. Then he shrugged. Still, the prudent wizard keeps his head down in such times. All very well for Dumbledore to talk, but taking up a post at Hogwarts just now would be a, a tantamount to declaring my public allegiance to the Order of the Phoenix. And, while I'm sure they're very admirable and brave, and all the rest of it, I don't personally fancy the mortality rate. You don't have to join the Order to teach Hogwarts, said Harry who could not quite keep a note of derision out of his voice. It was hard to sympathize with Slughorn's cosseted existence when he remembered Sirius, crouching in a cave and living on rats. Most of the teachers aren't in it, and none of them have ever been killed. Well, unless you count Quirrell, and he got what he deserved seeing as he was working with Voldemort. Here I had been sure Slughorn would be one of those wizards who could not bear to hear Voldemort's name spoken aloud, and was not disappointed. Slughorn gave a shudder and a squawk of protest, which Harry ignored. I reckon the staff are safer than most people while Dumbledore's headmaster. 
He's supposed to be the only one Voldemort ever feared, isn't he? Harry went on. Slughorn gazed into space for a moment or two. He seemed to be thinking over Harry's words. Well, yes, it is true that he who must not be named has never sought a fight with Dumbledore, he muttered grudgingly. And I suppose one could argue that, as I have not joined the Death Eaters, he who must not be named can hardly count me a friend. In which case, I might, well, be safer a little closer to Albus. I cannot pretend that Amelia Bones' death did not shake me. If she, uh, with all the ministry contacts and protection... Dumbledore re-entered the room and Slughorn jumped as though he had forgotten he was in the house. Oh, you are here, Albus, he said. You've been a very long time. Upset stomach? <laughs> no, I was merely reading the muggle magazines, said Dumbledore. I do love knitting patterns. Well, Harry, we have trespassed upon horse hospitality quite long enough. I think it's time for us to leave. Not all reluctant to obey, <laughs> Harry jumped to his feet. Slughorn seemed taken aback. You're leaving? Yes, indeed. I think I know a lost cause when I see one. Lost? Slughorn seemed agitated. He twiddled his fat thumbs and fidgeted as he watched Dumbledore fasten his travel cloak and Harry zip up his jacket. Well, I'm sorry you don't want the job here, Horace, said Dumbledore, raising his uninjured hand in farewell salute. Hogwarts would have been glad to see you back again. Our greatly increased security, notwithstanding you, will always be welcome to visit. You should wish to. Yes, well, very gracious, I say. Goodbye, then. Bye, said Harry. They were out the front door when they were, there was a shout from behind them. All right, all right, all right. I'll do it. Dumbledore turned to see Slughorn standing breathless in the doorway to the sitting room. You will come out of retirement. Yes, yes, said Slughorn impatiently. I must be mad, but yes. Wonderful, said Dumbledore beaming. Then, Horace, we shall see you on the 1st of September... Yes, I dare say you will, grunted Slughorn. As they set off down the garden path, Slughorn's voice floated after them. I want a pay raise, Dumbledore! <laughs> With that, I'm going to turn it back over to you, man. So you can see right here, just from this, like he's all about himself. It's the guy that he's like wants to be the life of the party, but no one thinks he's funny. Actually, he's a little bit offensive. Or almost like the guy that like tries to get girls interested by saying a lot of dirty jokes and you're like do you dude know that who wasn't he is? funny like at you know all. who he reminds me of he reminds me of uh pierce hawthorne from community like he does says, like some really like you know offensive stuff about people thinks it's funny he doesn't he comes from a different time where like you know it's just, he doesn't realize that his it, it, like the world has moved to a different place i think he reminds me a lot of of him but uh, this, like, but you started to see a little bit, like almost like they were saying, he's, he almost seems like a collector who's outbid on stuff. He talks about all the connections he made and how they benefited him, and even Dumbledore kind of goes into it like a little bit later here and says something along the lines of like, he never wanted to be in the spotlight himself, but he always liked being able to tell people he was, you know, someone who was uh, an important part of somebody important's life. Like, hey, like I helped him get to where he is, type of deal. Like he likes to be in the background, yeah. like pulling the strings, type of deal. So. Thought that was pretty cool. Hey, quick, uh, I just wanted to say something because you said Pierce Hawthorne. I thought it was so funny. Uh, Pierce Hawthorne in that show Community, there's a, a, a episode, there's a part where he doesn't get invited to something and he starts this whole plan against him. Well, he sits down and it's kind of like Slughorn here 
like taking this job when they didn't feel like they're not gonna pester him about it. It's a waste of their time. So they started to leave. Well, it's kind of like Pierce Hawthorne. He sits down. He says, first of all, invite me to your crap." <laughs> it was like the same thing. <laughs> Like, he almost plays, like, hard to get, hard to get. And then finally, like, all right, like, sure. Like, we really just came to ask you a question. Like, I'm not going to, like, sit here and beg you to come with us. He's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. All right. You convinced me. Fine. Just trying to make a point. You apparently didn't get it. <laughs> yeah. With that, I'll turn it back over to you, man. For sure. And I'll actually pick up right off where you left off and get through. Uh, I'll tell you all this on page 75, which is the next page over. It says, uh, Dumbledore chuckled. The garden gate swung behind them shut, and they set off back down the hill through the dark and swirling mist. Well done, Harry, said Dumbledore. I didn't do anything, said Harry in surprise. Oh, yes, you did. You showed Horace exactly how much he stands to gain by returning to Hogwarts. Did you like him? Uh, Harry wasn't sure whether he liked Slughorn or not. He supposed he had been pleasant in his way, but he also seemed vain. And whatever he said to the contrary, he was much too surprised that a muggle-born should make a good witch. Horace, said Dumbledore, relieving Harry of the responsibility to say any of this out loud, likes his comforts. He also likes the company of famous, successful, and powerful people. He enjoys the feeling that he influences these people. He has never wanted to occupy the throne himself. He prefers the back seat. More room to spread out, you see. He used to handpick favorites at Hogwarts, sometimes for their ambition or their brains, sometimes for their charm or their talent. And he had an uncanny knack for choosing those who would go on to become outstanding in their various fields. Horace formed a kind of club with his favorites, with himself at the center, making introductions, forging useful contacts between members, and always reaping some kind of benefit in return. Whether a free box of his favorite crystallized pineapple, or the chance to recommend the next junior member of the Goblin Liaison Office. And then... Harry suddenly had a vivid mental image of a great sullen spider spinning a web around it, twitching a thread here and there to bring its large and juicy flies a little closer. I tell you all this, Dumbledore continued, not to turn you against Horus, or as we must now call him, Professor Slughorn, but to put you on guard. He will undoubtedly try to collect you, Harry, and you would be the jewel of his collection, the boy who lived, or as they call you these days, the chosen one. So... I just want to read that there because it kind of supported what we were just talking about with Oris Slughorn and how that's what he likes to operate. Uh, next thing is like you know they arrive at the burrow, they uh, the Dumbledore and Harry arrive there and then Dumbledore pulls Harry to the side before letting Harry actually go inside. So on page seventy six, this is going to be a really important part to read. I'm actually going to read this through the end of the chapter, a good four pages here. It says I hope you will forgive me for mentioning it, Harry, but I'm pleased and a little proud at how well you seem to be coping after everything that happened at the Ministry. Permit me to say that I think Sirius would have been proud of you. Harry swallowed. His voice seemed to have deserted him. He did not think he could stand to discuss Sirius. It had been painful enough to hear Uncle Vernon say, His godfather's dead? And even worse to hear Sirius's name thrown out casually by Slughorn. It was cruel, said Dumbledore softly, that you and Sirius had such a short time together. A brutal ending to what should have been a long and happy relationship. Harry nodded, his eyes fixed resolutely on the spider now climbing up Dumbledore's hat. He could tell that Dumbledore understood that he might even suspect until his letter arrived, Harry spent nearly all his time at the Dursleys, lying on his bed, refusing meals, and staring at the misted window, full of the chill emptiness that he had come to associate with Dementors. It's just hard, Harry said finally in a low voice, to realize he won't write to me again. His eyes suddenly burned, and he blinked. He felt stupid for admitting it, 
But the fact that he had someone outside of Hogwarts who cared what happened to him, almost like a parent, had been one of the best things about discovering his godfather. And now, the post-owls would never bring him that comfort again. Sirius represented much to you that you had never known before, said Dumbledore gently. Naturally, the loss is devastating. But while I was at the Dursleys, interrupted Harry, his voice growing stronger, I realized I can't shut myself away, or crack up. Sirius wouldn't have wanted that, would he? And anyway, life's too short. Look at Madame Bones. Look at Emmeline Vance. It could be me next, couldn't it? But if it is, he said fiercely, now looking straight into Dumbledore's blue eyes gleaming in the wand light. I'll make sure I'll take as many Death Eaters with me as I can, and Voldemort too if I can manage it. Spoken like your mother and father's son, and Sirius's true godson, said Dumbledore with an approving pat on Harry's back. I take my hat off to you, or I would if it were not if I were not afraid of showering you in spiders. And now, Harry, on a closely related subject, I gather that you have been taking the daily profit over the last two weeks. Yes, said Harry, and his heart beat a little faster. Then you have seen that there has not been not so much leaks as floods concerning your adventure into the Hall of Prophecy. Yes, said Harry again, and now everyone knows that I'm the... No, they do not, interrupted Dumbledore. There are only two people in the whole world who know the full contents of the prophecy made about you and Lord Voldemort, and they are both standing in the smelly, spidery broom shed. It is true, however, that many have guessed correctly that Voldemort sent his Death Eaters to steal a prophecy, and the prophecy concerned you. Now, I think I am correct in saying that you have not told anybody that you know what the prophecy said. No, said Harry. A wise decision on the whole, said Dumbledore, although... I think you ought to relax it in favor of your friends, Mr. Ronald Weasley and Miss Hermione Granger. Yes, he continued when Harry looked startled. I think they ought to know. You do them a disservice by not confiding something important as this to them. I didn't want to worry or frighten them, said Dumbledore, surveying Harry over the top of his half-moon spectacles, or perhaps to confess that you yourself are worried and frightened. You need your friends, Harry. And as he so rightly said, Sirius would not have wanted you to shut yourself away. Harry said nothing, but Dumbledore did not seem to require an answer. He continued, on a different, though unrelated, on a different, though related subject, it is my wish that you take private lessons with me this year. Private with, with you, said Harry, surprised out of his preoccupied silence. Yes, I think it is time that I took a greater hand in your education. What will you be teaching me, sir? Oh, a little of this, a little of that, said Dumbledore airily. Harry waited hopefully, but Dumbledore did not elaborate, so he asked something else that had been bothering him slightly. If I'm having lessons with you, I won't have to do occlumency lessons with Snape anymore, will I? Professor Snape, Harry, and no, you will not. Good, said Harry in relief, because they were, uh, he stopped, careful not to say what he really thought. I think the word fiasco would be a good one here, said Dumbledore nodding, and Harry laughed. Well, that means I won't see much of Professor Snape now on from now on because he won't let me carry on potions unless I got an outstanding in my owl, which I know I haven't. Don't count your owls before they are delivered, said Dumbledore gravely, which now I think of it ought to be sometime later today. Now, two more things, Harry, before we part. Firstly, I wish you to keep your invisibility cloak with you at all times from this moment onwards, even within Hogwarts itself, just in case. You understand me? Harry nodded. And lastly, while you stay here, the borough has been given the highest security the Ministry of Magic can provide. 
These measures have caused a certain amount of inconvenience to Arthur and Molly. All their posts, for instance, is being searched at the ministry before being sent on. They do not mind in the slightest, for their only concern is your safety. However, it would be poor repayment if you risked your neck while staying with them. I understand, said Harry quickly. Very well, then, said Dumbledore, pushing open the broom shed door and stepping out into the yard. I see a light on in the kitchen. Let us not deprive Molly any longer of the chance to deplore how thin you are. And that will close <laughs> out chapter four, which is great. Takeaways from that, the biggest thing, because I know Chase and I already kind of discussed the Slughorn deal, so kind of from where I took over to the end, big things there is that Dumbledore is going to be giving Harry private lessons. We don't really know what those private lessons are going to entail yet, but he also thinks it's safe and smart to confide what the prophecy said to Hermione and Ron, because he said, you know, you need your friends there. So some things there, some good foreshadow for what's to come. Uh, I thought that was really important. It was nice for... Uh, it, it almost seems like Harry's starting to move on from Sirius's death. Not that it doesn't affect him, but like he's like, like he said, I can't shut myself away. I can't you know, hide it. You know, Sirius wouldn't have wanted that for me. So it's not that he's starting to get over it. He's starting to like get past the depression stage, right? Now he's kind of going through the stages of grief. He's kind of moving out of that depression stage. And so um, with that, I'll let Chase kind of take us into uh, Chapter 5. Yeah, man, an excess of phlegm. <laughs> this uh, plays a big role. Get to see some full circle moments here. Uh, first thing, we can just kind of... This is one of those chapters, you know, you can pretty much kind of bullet points. Yeah, bullet points, baby. Stuff. Hell yeah. That's the way I like to do I'm a bullet point kind of guy, man. <laughs> Except if it's order, you know, we got to <laughs> break it down like word by word. Um, first thing I got was... So Arthur was promoted at the ministry, so... Moving on up there. Um, so he's now heading the office for the counterfeit defensive spells and the protective objects. Um, and this is actually seen on page 84. Page 84. There, there was a little bit more to the title. It's, he's actually the head of the office for the detection and confiscation of counterfeit defensive spells and protective okay. objects. Yeah, got it. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, stand corrected. Yeah, you're, you're right, 100%. That was... Uh, in, the office for detection and confiscation of counterfeit defensive spells and protective objects. I got a little bit, uh, a little bit too much bullet points started going with initials. <laughs> yeah. <that> right. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah. So, I mean, I guess it's good for, you kind of see these moments too, which is kind of cool that I like that they put in there. Um, remember when Arthur won like that trip to Egypt like, you can see, like, this guy works his ass off. So, like, finally he's getting these little steps here and there, which is really good. So, um, and it, uh, you know, from here we kind of have a little bit of a, a little bit of a paragraph here that I do want to mention. Because it does, he kind of, it kind of describes, like, the situation of everything going on at the ministry and what Arthur's dealing with in that environment. And he's describing to the family, he just says, well, you see, in all the panic about you-know-who, odd things have been cropping up for sale everywhere. Things that are supposed to guard against you-know-who and the Death Eaters. You can imagine the kind of thing, so-called protective potions, that are really gravy with a bit of boober tuber pus added. Or instructions for defensive jinxes that actually make your ears fall off. Well, in the main... <laughs> 
the perpetrators are just people like Madungus Fletcher, who never done an honest day's work in their lives and are taking advantage of how frightened everybody is. But every now and then, something really nasty turns up. The other day, Arthur confiscated a box of cursed sneakoscopes that were almost certainly planted by Death Eaters. You see, it's a very important job, and I tell them it's just silly to miss dealings with spark plugs and toasters and all the rest of muggle rubbish. <laughs> and that was Miss Weasley talking to the family at the dinner table. So I thought it was good. I mean, at the same time, too, I got to say this, like, there's no better relationship than, like, Arthur and Miss Weasley. Like, they're always there for for each other. So, like, he could... Let's be real. Arthur doesn't have the most exciting job <laughs> in the world at all. But she's making it, like, crack up to be. Like, it's such, like, this cool job. And, I mean, it is really important. It's just kind of everyone at the table is like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is nice. <laughs> yeah, and uh, back to you, man. I'll let you uh, take us from here. For sure. I did want to back up just a couple of pages because I have two bullet points I want to mention. Mm-hmm. Um, the first one there is this is just kind of us making fun of Order One last time. Remember when like she get, like he calls her Nymphadora and she's like, "Don't call me Nymphadora or whatever." <laughs> yeah. Well, right here on page eighty-one, like Dumbledore says, uh, "Ah, hello, Nymphadora," and like she didn't ever freak out or lose her mind about ever. that. So, anyways, <laughs> just want to point yeah. that out quickly. Um, we learned that Professor Slughorn actually taught Mr. Weas- Mrs. Weasley and Arthur. And that he started around the same time that Dumbledore started. I thought that was important to kind of put the age in perspective. Cool. So, yeah, mm-hmm. he actually taught Mr. and Mrs. Weasley. Um, Professor Slughorn did. Then on mm-hmm. page 84, you talk about him being promoted at the ministry to that new office. He now has 10 people reporting to him. It definitely is a really important thing because, like, you're basically yeah. playing with people's, like, peace of mind. They're thinking they're buying, like, spending their life savings on stuff that, like, doesn't work or, like, even worse that, like, does the opposite and, like, actually, like, jinxes them, like, the Death Eaters with, like, the cursed sneakoscopes there. So, like, it's definitely super, yeah. super important. Like, it's way better than the misuse of muggle artifacts like he used to work in, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but then uh, <laughs> then the next thing I have where I will kind of go forward from where you left us off there on page 85 is that the Weezy clock now shows the whole family in mortal peril. You guys remember that big clock that we talked about? It kind of yeah. shows them where they are through their day. Well, right now it shows all the Weasleys at mortal peril, so... Thought that was important. On page 87, I'm actually going to go ahead and read from where it says, uh, Thanks, Molly, when Arthur gets home, through the first paragraph on page 88. Thanks, Molly. It's been a tough night. Some idiot started selling metamorph medals. Just sling them around your neck and you'll be able to change your disappearance and change your appearance at will. A hundred thousand disguises, all for ten galleons. And what really happens when you put them on? Mostly you just turn a fairly unpleasant orange color, but a couple people have sprouted tentacle-like warts all over their bodies, as if St. Mungo's didn't already have enough to deal with already. Sounds like the sort of thing Fred and George would find funny, said Mrs. Weasley hesitantly. Are you sure? Of course I am, said Mr. Weasley. The boys wouldn't do anything like that now, not when people are desperate for protection. So is that why you're late, Metamorph Metals? No, we got wind of a nasty backfiring jinx down in Elephant Castle, but luckily the magical law enforcement squad had sorted out by the time we got there. Harry stifled the yawn behind his hand, but... Bed, said an undeceived Mrs. Weasley at once. I've got Fred and George's room all ready for you, and you'll have it all to yourself. Why? Where are they? Oh, they're in Diagon Alley, sleeping in this little flat over their joke shop. They're so busy, said Mrs. Weasley. I must say, I didn't approve at first, but they do seem to have a bit of a flair for business. Come on, dear, your trunk's up there already. So I just want to read that one because, you know, it kind of talks 
cool things about how Fred and George are being successful at what they're doing. They got their own little flat, like you know, on, over their thing in Diagon Alley, which already has to cost an arm and a leg to rent that space out, anyways. And then, of mm-hmm. course, I kind of also went into talking about why Arthur's job is super important. Talking about like you know these things now. These people going to St. Mungo's for the stuff that he's got to be in charge of. Um, page ninety bullet point here. Harry tells Ron and Hermione about Slughorn. Page ninety one. Everyone in the house is fed up with Fleur except for Ron and Harry. But we heard we actually learned that she and Bill are going to get married, which is that full circle moment that you were talking yeah. about. So Fleur comes mm-hmm. in like she gets all like so happy to see Harry, gives him kisses on the cheek. Ron's kind of mystified because you know she's part Vila, and Hermione gets all in an attitude, huffs on that, puts herself <laughs> in the dang corner away from him, all that nonsense. But all of that is just really leads up to the full circle moment of. Bill and Fleur are getting married. We kind of knew it was heading that way because they were seeing each other last book that was mentioned. Well, now we get that full circle moment that Bill Weasley and Fleur Delacour are going to be married. Uh, Page (laughs) 93. The Weasley women do not seem to be fond of the engagement, but reckon it's a panic decision because of Voldemort's back. So they start talking about how they think they're rushing into it because tomorrow's not promised. They're making these crazy rush life decisions. You know, thinking that, you know, they could be dead any day. So, but, you know, they don't give her enough credit because what we'll find out later. I won't ruin anything for anybody. But Fleur yeah. Delacour is a good wife and a good, a good person to be engaged to. And she really does love Bill for the right reasons, I'll say. And then page 93 continued. Ginny thinks that, like, Bill loves Fleur Delacour just because he's a curse breaker and he likes adventure <laughs> and she represents kind of like that. So I thought that was pretty important. And then, uh, foreshadow here. Ron, Hermione, and Ginny tell Harry about Tonks, and they think that Tonks is depressed because of survivor's guilt. We will find out later on exactly what she was really upset about, and I'll just say it that doesn't tell the full story right there. And then the last yeah. thing I'll do before I turn it back over to Chase is on page 95. I'll read the first three paragraphs regarding why Tonks thinks it's her fault. So this is the first three paragraphs. She said, that's not the point, Hermione said. She thinks it was her fault he died. How does she work that one out? Asked Harry in spite of himself. Well, she was fighting Bellatrix with strains, wasn't she? I think she feels that if only she had finished her off, Bellatrix couldn't have killed Sirius. That's stupid, said Ron. It's survivor's guilt. I know Lupin's tried to talk her around, but she's still really down, and she's actually having trouble with her metamorphosing. With her, she can't change appearance like she used to. I think her powers may have been affected by shock or something. So that kind of goes into... Uh, Tonks's depression and actually how it's affecting her day-to-day life and then the last thing I'll do actually because it does mention Fred and George in the next part of my notes so I'm going to take this one last part before I turn it back over yeah. to Chase here on page 96 like Fred and George's business is booming so I'm actually going to read uh, from where it says your mom said the shops all the way through uh, yeah, there it says that's an understatement in the paragraph right underneath so it says your mom yeah. said the shops going well said Harry Said Fred and George have got a real flair for business. That's an understatement, said Ron. They're raking in the galleons. I can't wait to see the place. We haven't been to Diagon Alley yet because Mom says Dad's got to be there for extra security. And he's been really, really busy at work. But it sounds excellent. And what about Percy? Asked Harry, the third eldest Weasley brother had fallen out with the rest of the family. Is he talking to your mom and dad again? Nope, said Ron. But he knows your dad was right all along now about Voldemort being back. Dumbledore says people find it far easier to forgive each other for being wrong than being right. So now we learn that you know Percy's still a little. Uh, I'll be nice and not say what I really want to say. Percy's yeah. still not yeah. acting right. 
even though he was clearly in the wrong and he knows he's in the wrong. He's still not talking. They're still not on speaking terms. He hasn't reconciled the differences with his family. And with that, on page 97, I'll turn it over to Chase to uh, take us from there. Yeah, it makes me wonder about Floor, though, because I feel like I wonder if it's because I think it's like that song, Baby, I'm jealous of the pictures that you like. <laughs> yeah, I think I think they're just jealous because she's hot and they're not. <laughs> like, that's what I think it is, man. She's a stunner, man. Remember, she showed up on Harry's bed, and he was about to he was about to lose himself right there before everyone walked in. Uh, but by the way, just like you said, you know, the Vila and Arthur was all over the Vila back in the day. Yeah, man. Uh, but harping on oh, talking about Tonks, I thought it was great you mentioned that because remember. Jenny was like, I would much love Tonks better in the family. And then Molly keeps, like, inviting Tonks over because <laughs> she's trying to get Bill with Tonks. And then, remember, Molly was, like, always calling Jenny downstairs because just because she didn't want to sit in the same room as Floor. <laughs> like, I don't... Yeah, it's so messed up. <laughs> it's, like, the typical, like, mother-in-law situation, pretty much, you know? Yeah, so from there... um, this is what kind of makes me bring this up because after all the animosity, right? Um, so, well, I'll say a couple of things and then I'll bring this up here. But so this brings up the Flim thing, actually. We never actually mentioned that, but they keep calling Floor Flim, <laughs> is what it is. So that's why it says an excess of Flim. They're really, Jenny's just being an ass. <laughs> is what it is and everyone's catering into it. molly and jenny are being an ass and like hermione's like cool with it too yeah it's like what is the deal i don't know but uh this is when harry remember uh based on what dumbledore said that you you hit on uh he actually tells ron and hermione the prophecy you know you know one must die for the other one to survive so that was a big moment there um miss weasley still like harping on the thing but uh what happened was there's a moment here where floor is talking about examinations because you know their owls is about to come in just like uh dumbledore mentioned like probably will be tonight or tomorrow you know and then she goes at bow patents <laughs> floor complacently we had a different way of doing things i think it was better um we sat our examinations after six years of study not five and then Floor's words were drowned in a scream. Uh, but the scream isn't that important, but it's the whole point of, like, I can see why they would get annoyed of her. Because keep in mind, she's not even from this area, though. So, of course, she's going to try to relate to what she knows. But at the same time, they're seeing it as, like, oh, she's super hot and attractive and successful. Like, she thinks she's guys. better than us. Yeah, they think that she thinks she's better than them. Yeah, like, for yeah. sure. So, yeah, and, yeah, and, you know, what happened was Bill's working at Gringotts, and he took the hottest one there. He said, the hottest girl. <laughs> he said, she's out of my league, and I got her anyways. Fuck yeah. <laughs> Mind over matter, baby. She doesn't love me. She loves my bank account. Fuck yeah. <laughs> what, what, what bank account? The Weasleys are broke. <laughs> they ain't got no bank Oh, yeah, I meant Bill. <laughs> He's Bill's a Weasley still. Suits. But no, she yeah, loves him yeah, for that's true. why that's the opposite thing. Remember, I was saying like <laughs> we find out later on like Fleur actually loves Bill for Bill, man. Like 
That's yeah, and Bill's a stud. Remember yeah. Bill's yeah. for our audience. He's like the surfer dude with the was it a dragon earring? Yeah, a dragon tooth earring. Like yeah, had a hair and a back ponytail. Like yeah, dude. Yeah, he's a beast, man. He's a beast. Uh, so once again, the owl level grades. So uh, just so everyone knows that so they don't mistake a D for an O, like I was thinking, I got on the charms exam. Retook that, by the way. I think I, when I retook it, I think I got an acceptable. <laughs> I think that's probably what I had, something like that. I end up like Neville Longbottom, you know? <laughs> Just kidding. Anyway, so reminder of the owl ordinary wizarding level uh, grades here. So passing grades is O for outstanding, E for exceeds expectations, A for acceptable. Failing grades are P for poor, D for dreadful, T for troll. So, Harry gets his exams in. Start getting a little scared here. Yeah, because you were uh, PLAY playing games on your exam, Harry. Too busy having visions and dreams. You should have popped an Adderall, took it out of your mind, and finished the exam. Maybe you should have finished it. It was history of so, magic, dude. Who cares about history of magic? That subject sucks anyways. He doesn't even need it to get a B. He wants to be an Auror, you know? He doesn't need history of magic. Fuck that shit. <laughs> I would have aced history and magic. Everyone knows I'm the interesting facts. I would have, I I would have fallen asleep facts. without visions. I would have fallen asleep just because the spudruck was boring. <laughs> <laughs> Reminds me of a wedding crashers like throwing back and forth. It's like, yeah, why don't we uh maybe <laughs> maybe we should be Count Chocula or pimps from Oakland. Grow up, Peter Pan. <laughs> no, I'd like to own my own maple syrup conglomerate and see what holds it up, slick. <laughs> oh, so so great. Anyways, right, but so Harry gets an A in astronomy for acceptable. I was actually surprised he even passed it with everything that was going on. Remember that's when cowards and <laughs> Agrid was like taking everyone out with his hands. So he had a little bit of a distraction there. So I see that. Care for magical creatures. We know he'd rock it. I was actually surprised he didn't get an O. Me too. He got an E for exceeds expectations. Charms did well. E for exceeds expectations there. Defense against the dark arts. We knew he was going to rock it. Got an outstanding on that. O, basically an A. Divination. I was surprised on this one. It was that bad. But he got that P for poor. It said he had missed some things. But yeah. Herbology got exceeds expectations. Potions, uh, remember he got lucky because Snape wasn't the professor during that exam. So just throwing that out there. If my boy was giving him this exam, I feel like that one would have ended up like the next one that you're going to hear about. Um, and then so Transfiguration, he got an E. Um, and then, you know, we all know exactly what he got on History of Magic because he didn't finish the exam um so history of magic uh he got did he get d for did it come d for it dreadful. exactly an entire failing it was it was a d for dreadful he got a d for dreadful in oh well that's magic. what i was gonna say like but it wasn't the lowest right right no he didn't get troll he didn't get troll on anything which is nice <laughs> yeah so he but it's still failing yeah. but it's not done so I guess you would probably put that like he got like a fifty or a sixty. It wasn't like the thirty. Right, much. right, right. Still wasn't even like a good F. Like at least like you know you you knew the ones that were easy. He didn't even get those. It was pretty bad. But it says uh, Harry looked back at his results. They were as good as he could have hoped for. <laughs> 
terrible, man. Uh, you felt just one teeny twinge of regret. And this was the end of ambition to become an Aurora. He had not secured the required potions grade. He had known all along that he wouldn't. But he still felt a sinking in his stomach as he looked again at the small black E. It was odd, really. Seeing that, you know, it had been a Death Eater in disguise who had first told him, had told Harry he would make a good Aurora. But somehow the idea had taken hold of him and he couldn't really think of anything else he would like to be. Moreover, it seemed the right, the right destiny for him since he heard the prophecy a few weeks ago. Neither can live while the other survives. Wouldn't be living or the prophecy and giving himself the best chance of survival. If he joined those highly trained wizards, whose job would it be to kill Voldemort? And that's on page 103 to 104. Bro, do you want to give that last sentence another shot? You kind of butchered that. <laughs> like, like, yeah. You want to give... Let me pull up my book here. That's what I get for reading my handwriting there too, by the way, guys. Uh, I'll, I'll just do it because I already have it open. It says... Uh, you got it? Wouldn't he be living up to the prophecy and giving himself the best chance of survival if he joined those highly trained wizards whose job it was to find and kill Voldemort? Like, that, like that's what it is there. Yeah, I think I, uh, I think I cut out the wizards part or something. It was just a, was just a little up. choppy. I want, I wanted to make sure that that got there. <laughs> I was trying to, yeah, I was trying to see if they could make out the words. <laughs> yeah. I can't make out the words. That, for <laughs> yeah, those for those um, out there, that's what Chase gets for doing it at 8 a.m. in the morning after staying up the whole previous night and writing it down when he's basically falling asleep while he's taking the notes. <laughs> well, see, I even had the page number here, 103 to 104, so you would have thought I would have just opened the book. But I figured I'd give it, I'd give it that one more final shot. Like, I figured I could read it right there just in case and... No, I proved my point. This is why I always have the book up here, man. You talk yeah. about <laughs> Yeah. For sure, Good for stuff. sure. But owls, who cares? You see, it's... But it's a big moment, you know? Because they finally got their owls back. Of course, like, Hermione, like, rocks everything. Like, ready to prepare for the newts, right? And then one thing I did want to mention is about Ron. Like, it says, Ron had no outstandings at all out of the seven owls. Like, just no outstandings. And remember, his mom was like, well, that's great, hon. You did fantastic. Like, no one has any confidence in Ron whatsoever. Like, Ron's just like, yeah. <laughs> like, all right. Like, you would think someone like that, right? They have different talents. Like, all right, you're killer at sports. But we know exactly how he is at sports, too. <laughs> so, all right. And with that, I'll send it back over know. to you, man. You want to kick us off on our... Uh, this is going to be the chapter that closes us out today. I actually got a couple things I want to talk about right that happened before the OWL results come in. Just because it plays okay, a role cool. into this chapter we're about to. Uh, in page 98, Hermione got punched in the eye by the Weasley Twins telescope, and it gave yeah. her a brilliant black eye that she had there. And they, they, like, Mrs. Weasley was trying to, like, cure it and couldn't figure it out. So even more genius from Fred and George, like, they, like even regular spells can't cure this black eye. We'll figure out what happens they are. Um, they start to speculate what kind of lessons Dumbledore is going to give Harry. Like, they think, like, oh, you're going to learn crazy, awesome defensive spells that no one's ever heard before. He's going to teach you all these things, and it's just funny because, like, that's really not what happens. Um, <laughs> and when we go talk about the owls, like... He's like, even though Ron didn't get any outstandings, he's still got the same amount of owls as Harry, so he's basically on the same level, you know? Yeah. Harry only got seven owls, too. 
You know, but eleven yeah. Hermione got eleven owls, and almost all of them were outstanding. Except defense, defense against the dark arts, she got exceeds expectations. So she yeah. almost had a perfect slate of like uh, all eleven fully outstanding owls. Mm-hmm. So that shows how Hermione is. But yeah, and you mentioned this already. I just want to mention that it was a foreshadow. Harry thinks that he has no chance of becoming an Auror now because Snape only accepts O owls into his newt classes. We'll find out what actually ends up happening with there. And then, yes, that will kind of bring us into like the chapter six that we'll, we'll leave off with today. So I have a lot of bullet points on this one, too, before. like There's a part like at the very end, page 116, where I'll read to the end of the chapter. But just to kind of, just to kind of talk about ones I have, I thought it was funny on page 105 here in chapter six. It describes me like dreadful at Quidditch. Like she's just trash, that Quidditch. They wanted to play like two on two. <laughs> so they put like Ginny and uh, Hermione against... Ron and Harry, and then like, <laughs> like dude, I guess no, it was a uh, Harry and Hermione against Ron and Ginny. That's what it was, and like, like yeah, Hermione yeah. was just so bad. And then he said Ginny was kind of good, so it kind of yeah, made it Hermione even. Like you know, so he said Hermione was dreadful. That was the that was a describing word. <laughs> and so, anyways, uh, page one hundred five continued. Their disappearances and accidents and deaths are becoming like a daily thing now that they keep reading in the Daily Prophet and all the things that are going on. I will say in page 105, I'll read the last sentence on 105 through the first paragraph on 106. It says, There have been another couple of Dementor attacks, he announced as Mrs. Weasley passed him a large slice of birthday cake, and they found Igor Kakarov's body in a shack up north. The dark mark had been set over it. Well, frankly, I'm surprised he stayed alive for even a year after deserting the Death Eaters. Sirius's brother Regulus only managed a few days as far as I can remember. So that was Professor Lupin, well, Mr. Lupin, I guess we can call him now, he's not really a professor anymore, but Remus Lupin showed up, and uh, that's the news that he brought. Uh, more Dementor attacks, and Igor Kakarov, the Death Eater, the leader of Durmstrang, the headmaster of Durmstrang, mm-hmm. was found dead. He didn't, he didn't outlast him very long, so uh, that, that's, that was pretty big. Um, page 106, this is huge. We learned that Florian Fortescue was abducted, and so was Ollivander, which is a big foreshadow. So what I'll do is I'll read second to last paragraph on page 106, because especially with what comes up later and especially next book, this is going to be a big moment. So uh, talking of Diagon Alley, Mr. Weasley, looks like Ollivander's gone too. The wand maker, said Ginny looking startled. That's the one. Shop's empty. No sign of a struggle. No one knows whether he left voluntarily or was kidnapped. But wands? What will people do for wands? They'll make do with other makers, said Lupin. But Ollivander's was the best. And if the other side has got him, that's not so good for us. So the reason I want to bring that up is because I remember you were talking about one of your interesting fact things, saying that Ollivander's wands kind of sucked. Well, Lupin just said Ollivander's was the best. Like, it was really... So JK kind of like put herself in a, a little corner here because mm-hmm. if she mentioned that like the, the Ollivander's wands really weren't that great and in their own book on page 106 in Harry Potter and Deathly Hallows at the second to last paragraph it says but Ollivander's was the best and if the other side has got yeah, him Yeah, that's I was Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's uh, yeah, just let's talk about that. Too. Let's talk about that a little bit cuz I'll I'll let you have it after this. I just wanted to mention that last point cuz like I got questions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like like I can uh, so the what I the only way I can make sense of it because it's straight up on Pottermore like go on there <laughs> like there I there that's exactly where it is these are legitimate sources this isn't 
you know everything we brought up here we've showed you like it doesn't come from wikipedia like that's the reason we use like interviews and that sort of thing a minute that we mentioned like it's coming directly from the source what i think it is i think it's lupin just being biased saying that these are the best because remember you had victor crumb that was even talking about his wand back in your book goblet of fire during the wing of the wands and he was talking about when he got his wand um from the guy that actually competed against all and it says it's actually said that all wands were known um for being the most risky and non-durable wands <laughs> and actually um most wizards a lot of wizards that didn't trust Ollivanders that were even from the area for instance it's zold that's an example so she's actually you know we talked about it in the interesting fact she's an ancestor of tom riddle um and you know their family wasn't poor <laughs> like you know they could have bought it from Ollivanders, but she didn't go to Ollivanders because she didn't want to wand from there she um the core she actually had uh, I'm trying to think of what court was. Um, the yeah, that's what it was. She actually got the wand uh, from her sisters, and we told that whole story about it. But the wand that was her sisters was handed down from Salazar. But the rest of her family, what they did was they literally were constructing their own wands from wand trees because they didn't want to go to Ollivanders. And actually, the other guy was, was Ollivanders still like making had- wands back then though, because like. They're, they're, they're really old. If they're an ancestor of Voldemort, Voldemort was like 50 years ago was his time in school. So like, think about his ancestors. Was Ollivander even alive mm-hmm. and making wands back then? Uh, well, I was saying like way down the line. So like she uh, was passed down that one from Salazar. But it is actually true. Like his Ollivander's ancestor. Let me tell you this here real quick. It was... Because he had, like, his great-great-great-grandfather. Oh, I got it. So, Ollivander's, um, like, wand-making thing was a family business that, like... So, all the Ollivanders were wand-makers, even back mm-hmm. as far as... Okay, I get it now. Yeah. All the way okay. back. Yeah, actually, I got it right here. So, Ollivander on here... Let me tell you. It started out in 382 BC is when they established the shop. Cool. <laughs> like, there's no arguing with that. 382 before christ area which they call it mediterranean time but the first olivander was garrett olivander who is the one two they say one two three four five six seven eight seven or eight generations great grandfather is what that is so they've had it for a long time um and you know they mainly use their cores out of just olive wood and other, they say, of course, there's other lengths um, that can have certain core materials that made them special, which we know by some of them. But yeah, it literally is even right here. And it says the reference for this. I just literally pulled this up on my phone. Like, I was even afraid it would be like Wikipedia because I clicked on the first one. It says this guy quoted it in a citation, and the reference on the bottom says Pottermore. <laughs> like, literally, like, says Pottermore. And it says um let me find it right here where it says uh claims yeah see the original wands were from great britain and they're known for being not as durable as some of the other wands are inconsistent (laughs) and compared to all the other parts of the world and i mean so i think it's literally it's just lupin saying keep in mind 
you know, Lupin got his wand at Ollivander's, and, like, I think it comes down to, as well, like, from what you know. Like, what you know. Like, as far as, like, Ollivander's being in that area, like, he didn't go over to Durmstrang and <laughs> go get a wand or anything. He didn't craft his own. So I, I'm sure what it probably is more referring to is there are probably other wand makers we don't hear about besides, like, the major players that are in Durbstrang and that sort of thing. Even in... Um, well, Durbstrang had, had a very actually, important one. Gregorovich is very important, so he... <laughs> Gregorovich, that's the name <laughs> I was thinking of. Yeah, uh, but I was going to say, the um, the girl that was the president of Makusa, which is the magical administration for the American Ministry of Magic, uh, Magical Congress is why they call it that. We talked about that on Interesting Facts. She was from Savannah and made her own wands, but they said hers didn't quite compare to all of Vander's. So there's definitely like different levels. But I think it just comes down to like all of Vander's really at this time. Because they even described it that that other guy that was competing with them. That was just like a little cart that had been doing it for years. He had basically gone out of business by the time we're talking about nowadays. So I think it comes down to just like what you know. Like I'm sure someone made their own wand and was like selling it like. You know, almost like the Etsy version of wizarding wands back then. Like, I'm going to take my tax cut, but this is really babysitting wands under the table. <laughs> you know, you got the fake wands and they attach like a like part of a real core. So maybe like batteries attached. And they're like, oh, yeah, all of Andrews is the best. There's no batteries on this one. Fuck yeah. So I think that's really just what it comes down to. I think it's just like I never saw a Lupin compete in a Triwizard tournament either. So, yeah, <laughs> you know, no wing of the wands he's ever competed in. But otherwise, otherwise, though, I think realistically it could be once again she backed herself into a corner. And I think she probably didn't think. Maybe, yeah, because like, <laughs> this is what I really think could it be. is. Who knows? I think she's... A- I mean, maybe she did write that to make Lupin seem biased in it, or maybe she just thought like she didn't think anyone was gonna think farther into. Who knows? It's hard to say. That's not something that's something super that's clear cut. It just made me question it because like yeah. it was it was just right there where he says like Ollivander's was the best. So if the other side has him, we're in trouble. Like you know, I'm like huh? It's a very weird thing to say yeah. <laughs> after after like there was other notes saying that they were kind of not the best. Like you know, but. Anyways, we'll move on from Here's it. A, okay, go ahead. Oh, yeah. I'll let us move on. I was just going to say one last thing. You would have think she would have thought about that, though, especially as we're getting into these books where we start talking about wandless magic yeah. and stuff that most people don't even like consider because they're not thinking about stuff like that. Like, this is just the way it is. So you would have thought there would have just been at least some sort of thought, like, maybe I should have worded this differently if I was trying to make a different point. <laughs> just my thoughts on That's it. fair. Yeah. After you, man. On uh, page 106, like we learn that uh, Harry was made Quidditch captain, which actually gives him equal status the prefix now, which is nice because, like, you know, Dumbledore kind of regretted not giving Harry the prefix. Remember the end of order? He's like, I thought you had enough mm-hmm. to go on with as it was instead of adding more responsibility to you. So what's he do? He makes it, like, you know, he makes it right. And so now Harry and Ron, I'm sorry, Ron and Hermione are prefix, and Harry is a Quidditch captain, and he can actually use their bathroom and, like, uh, their special, like, their whole... <laughs> Yeah, doubles. exactly. They got everything now. He's a Quidditch captain. He's got the same uh, status, basically, as the prefix. Um, and then with that, I'll actually turn it over to you because I wanted, I wanted to give you some bullet points before I take from one, page 116 and read to the end of the chapter. I'll let you do from like page 108 to 116, and then I'll finish this off. 
Yeah, did you want to take uh, one of? Yeah, you. I mean, you hit on one hundred and six, and and of course you hit uh, on Kakarov. I just wasn't sure like how much detail. Oh yeah, I just yeah, that was yeah. I said what we said yeah. there. So yeah, the last like, where I just left off is like page one hundred eight. I don't know if you got some good stuff for page one hundred eight. The only thing I had on one hundred eight was about yeah. his security status, but I'll let you go ahead and take that. All. That that's what I was gonna say. Like it was um, just that it tightened up was basically yeah. what it was. Like there was a little quote here, but it wasn't anything super important. It said two days ago, uh, Ike Philpot had a. Pr- I thought this was cool. <laughs> the quote, the probity charm, uh, probity pro. What's it called? Probity probe. And this is like Bill saying this stuck up his. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's when they like cut him yeah. off. Yeah. So I thought it was cool. You know. Um, as far as uh i they were picked i thought this was cool though where they were picked up by like the ministry of magic and like the car in front of everything like he's like like harry's like this like vip guy almost now which is really cool um hagrid you know he he like greets them all and remember he refers to as buckbeat as wither wings for a minute so um and you know and then from this point uh of course hagrid i thought this was cool speaking of security he's who dumbledore decided to hire as like the security <laughs> so i thought it was awesome um flourishing bots um this is kind of wild like how you were talking about before you know with shops like not being normal right like this is ironic because we've been in a year of like coronavirus yeah <laughs> we kind of saw this happen right True. yeah but it, uh floors and bots is like stripped down uh it describes it as it had like cardboard signs pinned all over it in front um and it said amulets uh, effective against werewolf werewolves dementors and it has that big foreshadowing there it says end in theory and that was on page 110 um Harry and Ron, this was, uh, I'll let you take it from here. They go to Madame Malkin's rule shop, and I'll take let you take it from here because I know that's a big part of your interesting facts. True, yeah, that was a good point fact, there. Yeah. Uh, so I, one thing I'll say is, like, they actually split up. So this is why, because they all go there together, but then Mr. Weasley, Mrs. Weasley, mm-hmm. and Ginny, they go get the books. Harry, Ron, and Hermione go with Hagrid, and they go get the robes. Mm-hmm. Now, when they go get the robes, <laughs> This is where some good stuff happens. Uh, number one, it's a full circle moment because they run into Malfoy in Madame Malkin's robe shop. It's a full circle of Sorcerer's Stone because, if you guys remember that, that's where Harry first laid his eyes on Draco Malfoy in this series was in Madame Malkin's robe shop. And the reason why it's a full circle mm-hmm. is because, I'll just say, there's no reason to go to Diagon Alley next year. So I'll say I'll say that. So this is why it's a full circle. You know, yeah. you you start where you, you end where you start, kind of type of deal. Um, so, anyways, that this is on page one thirteen, speaking from Malfoy to Hermione because remember, like that telescope punched Hermione in the face. Malfoy's being a little asshole says, "Who blacked your eye, Granger? I want to send them flowers." Like, wow, man, real cool. <laughs> like. I thought that was such um, an ass. Yeah, even before that, he's like, "If you're wondering what that smell is, mother, mudblood just entered the establishment." <laughs> like, what? Like, get out of here, man! Such an ass. But this is this such is the ass. fun part where I wanted to read like uh, on page one thirteen. I guess this is talking about the confrontation that is about to take place. I love this one. Page one thirteen. It says, uh, 
Madame Milk, uh, where, where is the page? Uh, put those away. Yeah, yeah. So Narcissus Malfoy strolled out from behind the clothes rack. This is where Ron, Hermione, and Harry have their wands pointed at Malfoy. Well, I guess just Ron and Harry because Hermione doesn't usually get into the scuffle. So, uh, Put those away, she said coldly to Harry and Ron. If you attack my son again, I shall ensure that it is the last thing you ever do. Really, said Harry, taking a step forward and gazing into the smoothly arrogant face that, for all its pallor, still resembled her sister's. He was as tall as she was now. Going to get a few Death Eater pals to do us in, are you? Madame Malkin squealed and clutched at her heart. Really? You shouldn't accuse. Dangerous thing to say. Wands away, please. But Harry did not lower his wand. Narcissa Malfoy smiled unpleasantly. I see that being Dumbledore's favorite has given you a false sense of security, Harry Potter. But Dumbledore won't always be there to protect you. A little foreshadow there. I want to point that out. Anyways, uh, <laughs> Harry looked mockingly all around the shop. Wow, look at that. He's not here now. So why not have a go? They might be able to find you a double cell in Askman with your loser of a husband. Malfoy made an angry movement towards Harry, but stumbled over his overlong robe, and Ron laughed loudly. Don't you dare talk to my mother like that, Potter, Malfoy snarled. It's all right, Draco, said Narcissa, restraining him with her thin white fingers upon his shoulder. I expect Potter will be reunited with the dear Sirius before I am reunited with Lucius. Harry raises one higher. Harry, no, moaned Hermione, grabbing his arm and attempting to push it down by his side. Think, you mustn't. You'll be in such trouble. Madame Malkin dithered for a moment on the spot, then seemed to decide that she was going to act as though nothing was happening in the hope that it wouldn't. She bent toward Malfoy, who was still glaring at her. I think this left sleeve could come up just a little bit. Dear, let me just... Ouch! Bella Malfoy slapping her hand away. Watch where you're putting your pins, woman. Mother... I don't think I want these anymore. He pulled the robes over his head and threw them on the floor at Madame Malkin's feet. You're right, Draco, said Narcissa with a contemptuous glance at Hermione. Now that I know the kind of scum that shops here, we'll do better at Twilfit and Taddings. That's where I'll stop that paragraph there. So my my uh, interesting fact today is going to be on Twilfit and Taddings, just to give you guys a heads up what we're going to do before we finish out this chapter here. But, man, they almost threw down right in the robe shop. They almost just... You know, did went wands galore and curses away, baby. They almost started throwing down in, in downtown <laughs> Diagon Alley, which honestly would have been really <laughs> hilarious. But anyways, uh, page 115. This is a foreshadow. Harry and Ron don't buy potion ingredients or equipment because they no longer study potions in their mind. So I thought that was something that was important right. to, uh, to kind of point out. Page 116. Now we're getting into some of the best parts for me. Talk about uh, Fred and George's joke shop. So this is like the funny sign that they have. Instead of like having it all boarded up with like ministry like documents and stuff, their sign says, Why are you worrying about you know who? You should be worrying about you know poo. The constipation sensation <laughs> that's gripping the nation. So <laughs> that was hilarious. They're absurd. Even like like their mom was so scared. Mrs. Weezy was like They'll be murdered in their beds. <laughs> like she thinks that, like yeah, like that was so yeah. she's so worried about it. Um, but anyways, what I'll go ahead and do is I'll actually read from the last uh, paragraph here through the end of the chapter because it's only a couple pages. But anyways, go for it. Uh, and he and Harry led the way into the shop. It was packed with customers. Harry could not get near the shelves. He stared around, looking up at the boxes piled up to the ceiling. Here there were scouting snack boxes that the twins had perfected during their last unfinished year at Hogwarts. Harry noticed the nosebleed nougat was the most popular, with only one battered box left on the shelf. 
There are bins full of trick wands, the cheapest merely turning into rubber chickens or pairs of briefs when waved. The most expensive, beating the unwary user on the head and neck, and boxes of quills which came in self-inking, spell-checking, and smart answer varieties. A space cleared in the crowd, and Harry pushed his way toward the counter where a gaggle of delighted ten-year-olds was watching a tiny little wooden man slowly ascending the steps to a real set of gallows, both perched on a box that read, Reusable Hangman. Spell it or he'll swing. Patented day daydream charms. Hermione had managed to squeeze through to a large display near the counter and was reading the information on the back of a box bearing a highly colored picture of a handsome youth and a swooning girl who were standing on the deck of a pirate ship. One simple incantation and you will enter a top quality, highly realistic, 30-minute daydream. Easy to fit into the average school lesson and virtually undetectable. Side effects include vacant expression and minor drooling. Not for sale to under-16s. You know, said Hermione, looking up to Harry, that really is extraordinary magic. For that one, Hermione, said a voice behind them, you can have one for free. A beaming Fred stood before them wearing a set of magenta robes that clashed magnificently with his flaming hair. How are you, Harry? They shook hands. What's happened to your eye, Hermione? You're punching telescope, she said ruefully. Oh, blimey, I forgot about those, said Fred. Here. He pulled a tub out of his pocket and handed it to her. She unscrewed a gingerly refilled thick yellow paste. Just dab it on and that bruise will be gone within the hour, said Fred. We'll find a we had to find a decent bruise remover. We're testing most of our products on ourselves. Hermione looked nervous. It is safe, isn't it? She asked. Of course it is, said Fred bracingly. Come on, Harry, I'll give you a tour. Harry left Hermione dabbing her black eye with paste and followed Fred toward the back of the shop where he saw a stand of uh, card and rope tricks. Muggle magic tricks, said Fred happily, pointing them out. For freaks like Dad, you know, who love muggle stuff. It's not a big earner, but we do fairly steady business. They're great novelties. Oh, here's George. Fred's twin shook Harry's hand energetically. Give him the tour? Come through the back, Harry. That's where we're making the real money. Pocket anything, you, and you'll pay more than galleons, he said warmly to a small boy who hastily whipped his hand out of the tub labeled edible dark marks. They'll make anyone sick. George pushed back a curtain beside the muggled tricks and saw Harry saw a darker, less crowded room. The packaging on the product linings these shelves was more subdued. We've just developed this more serious line, said Fred. Funny how it happened. You wouldn't believe how many people, even who work at the ministry, who can't do a decent shield charm, said George. Of course they didn't have you teaching them, Harry. That's right. Well, we thought shield hats were a bit of a laugh, you know. Challenge your mate to a jinx while you're wearing it and watch his face when the jinx just bounces off. But the ministry bought 500 for all its support staff, and we're still getting massive orders. So we've expanded into a range of shield cloaks, shield gloves. I mean, they wouldn't help much against the unforgivable curses, but for minor to moderate hexes or jinxes. And then we thought we'd get into the whole area of defense against the dark arts because it's such a money spinner, continued George enthusiastically. This is cool, look. Instant darkness powder, we're importing it from Peru. Handy if you want to make a quick escape. And our decoy detonators are just walking off the shelves. Look, said Fred, pointing at a number of weird-looking black horn-type objects that were indeed attempting to scurry out of sight. You just drop one surreptitiously off and it'll make a nice loud noise out of sight, giving you a diversion if you ever need one. Handy, said Harry, impressed. Here, said George, catching a couple and throwing them to Harry. A young witch with short blonde hair poked her head around the curtain. Harry saw that she, too, was wearing magnificent magenta staff robes. There's a customer out here looking for a joke cauldron, Mr. and Mr. Weasley. Harry found it very odd to hear Fred and George called Mr. Weasley, but they took it in stride. 
Right you are, Verity. I'm coming, said George promptly. Harry, help yourself to anything you want, all right? No charge. I can't do that, said Harry, who had already pulled out his money to pay for the decoy detonators. You don't pay here, said Friend firmly, waving Harry's gold away. But you gave us our startup loan. We haven't forgotten, said George sternly. Take whatever you like, and just remember to tell people where you got it if they ask. George swept off through the curtain to help with the customers, and Fred led Harry back to the main part of the shop to find Hermione and Ginny still poring over their patented daydream charms. Haven't you girls found our special Wonder Witch products yet, said Fred? Follow me, ladies. Near the window, there was an array of violently pink products around a cluster of excited girls was giggling enthusiastically. Hermione and Ginny both hung back looking wary. There you go, said Fred proudly. Best range of love potions you'll find anywhere. Ginny raised an eyebrow skeptically. Do they work? she asked. Certainly they work for up to 24 hours at a time, depending on the weight of the boy in question. And the attractiveness of the girl, said George, reappearing suddenly at their side. But we're not selling them to our sister, he added, becoming suddenly stern. Not when she's already got about five boys on the go from what we've heard. Whatever you heard from Ron is a big fat lie, said Ginny calmly, leaning forward to take a small pink pot off the shelf. What's this? Guaranteed 10 second pimple vanisher, said Fred. Excellent everything from boils to blackheads, but don't change the subject. Are you or are you not currently going out with a boy called Dean Thomas? Yes, I am, said Ginny. And last time I looked, he was definitely one boy, not five. What are those? She was pointing at a number of round balls of fluff in shades of pink and purple, all rolling around the bottom of a cage and emitting a high-pitched squeak. They're pygmy puffs, said George. Miniature puff skins. We can't breed them fast enough. So what about Michael Corner? I dumped him. He was a bad loser, said Ginny, putting a finger through the bars of the cage and watching the pygmy puffs crowd around it. They're really cute. They're fairly cuddly, yes, conceded Fred. But you're moving through boyfriends a bit fast, aren't you? <laughs> Ginny turned to look at him, her hands on her hips. There was such a Miss Weasley-ish glare on her face that Harry was surprised Fred didn't recoil. It's none of your business. And I'll thank you, she added, and angry to Ron, who had just appeared at George's elbow, laden with merchandise, not to tell tales about me to these two. That's three galleons, nine sickles, and a nut, said Fred, examining the box the mini boxes in Ron's arms. Cough up. I'm your brother. And that's our stuff you're nicking. Three galleons, nine sickles, I'll knock off the nut. But I haven't got three galleons, nine sickles. You'd better put it back then. And mind you, put it back on the right shelves. Ron dropped several boxes, swore, and made a rude hand gesture at Fred, who was unfortunately spotted by Mrs. Weasley, who had chosen that moment to appear. If I see you do that again, I'll jinx your fingers together, she said sharply. Mom, can I have a pygmy puff, said Ginny at once. A what? said Mrs. Weasley wearily. Look, they're so sweet. Mrs. Weasley moved aside to pygmy, look at the pygmy puffs, and Harry, Ron, and Hermione momentarily had an upended view of out the window, and Draco Malfoy was hurrying up the street alone. He passed Weasley wizard wheezes, he glanced over his shoulder, and a second later, he moved beyond the scope of the window, and they lost sight of him. Wonder where he, his mommy is, said, Fred, said uh, Harry, frowning. Given her the slip by the looks of it, said Ron. Why, though, said Hermione. Harry said nothing. He was thinking too hard. Narcissa Malfoy would not have let her precious son out of her sight willingly. Malfoy must have made a real effort to free himself from her clutches. Harry, knowing and knowing Malfoy, was sure the reason could not be innocent. He glanced around. Mrs. Weasley and Ginny were bending over the pygmy puffs. Mrs. Weasley was delightedly examining a pack of mogul-marked playing cards. Fred and George were both helping customers, and on the other side of the glass, Hagrid was standing with his back to them, looking up and down the street. Get out of here quick, said Harry, pulling the invisibility cloak out of his bag. Oh, I don't know, Harry, said Hermione, looking uncertainly towards Mrs. Weasley. Come on, said Ron. 
She hesitated for a second longer than ducked under the cloak with Harry and Ron. Nobody noticed them vanish. They were all too interested in Fred and George's products. So Harry, Ron, and Hermione squeezed their way out of the door as fast as they could, but by the time they gained the street, Malfoy had disappeared as successfully as they had. He was going in that direction, murmured Harry as quietly as possible, so that the mumming Hagrid would not overhear them. Come on. They scurried along, peering left and right through window shops until Hermione pointed ahead. That's him, isn't it? She whispered, turning left. Big surprise, whispered Ron, for Malfoy had glanced around, then slid into Nocturne Alley and out of sight. Quick, or we'll lose him, said Harry, speeding up. Our feet will be seen, said Hermione anxiously as the cloak flapped around their ankles. It was much more difficult hiding all three of them under the cloak nowadays. Doesn't matter, said Harry impatiently. Just hurry. But Nocturne Alley, the side street devoted to the dark arts, looked completely deserted. They peered into the windows as they passed, but none of the shops seemed to have any customers at all. Harry supposed it was a bit of a giveaway in these dangerous and suspicious times to buy dark artifacts, or at least to be seen buying them. Hermione gave his arm a hard pinch. Ouch! Shush! Look in here. He's in here. She breathed in Harry's ear. They had drawn level with the only shop in Nocturne Alley that Harry had ever visited, Borgen and Burke's, which sold a wide variety of sinister objects. There in the middle of the cases full of skulls and old bottles stood Draco Malfoy with his back to them, just visible beyond the very large same black cabinet in which Harry had once hidden to avoid Malfoy and his father. Judging by the movements of Malfoy's hands, he, would talk, he was talking animatedly and to the proprietor of the shop, Mr. Borgen, an oily-haired, stooping man who stood facing Malfoy. He was wearing a curious expression of mingled resentment and fear. If only we could hear what they're saying, said Hermione. We can, said Ron excitedly. Hang on. Damn. He dropped a couple more boxes that he was clutching as he fumbled with the largest. Extendable ears, look. Fantastic, said Hermione as Ron unraveled the long, flesh-colored strings and began to feed them toward the bottom of the door. Oh, I hope this door isn't imperturbable. <laughs> no, said Ron gleefully. Listen. They put their heads together and listened intently to the ends of the strings, to which Malfoy's voice could be heard loud and clear as though radio had just been turned on. You know how to fix it? Possibly, said Borgen in a tone that suggested he was unwilling to commit himself. I'll need to see it, though. Why don't you bring it into the shop? I can't, said Malfoy. It's got to stay put. I just need you to tell me how to do it. Harry saw Borgen lick his lips nervously. Well, without seeing it, I must say it will be a very difficult job, and perhaps impossible. I couldn't guarantee anything. No, said Malfoy. And Harry knew just by his tone that Malfoy was sneering. Perhaps this will make you more confident. He moved towards Borgen and was blocked from view by the cabinet. Harry, Ron, and Hermione shuffled sideways to try to keep him in sight, but all they could see was Borgen looking very frightened. Tell anyone and there will be retribution. You know Fenrir Greyback? He's a family friend. He'll be dropping in from time to time to make sure you're giving the problem your full attention. There'll be no need for I'll decide that, said Malfoy. Well, I'd better be off, and don't forget to keep that one safe. I'll need it. Perhaps you'd like to take it now. No, of course I wouldn't, you stupid little man. How would I look carrying that down the street? Just don't sell it. Of course not, sir. Borgen made a bow as deep as the one Harry had seen him give Lucius Malfoy. Not a word to anyone, Borgen. That includes my mother, understand? Naturally, naturally, murmured Borgen, bowing again. Next one with the bell over the door tinkled loudly as Malfoy stalked out of the shop looking pleased with himself. He passed so close to Ron and Harry and Hermione that they felt the cloak flutter around their knees again. Inside the shop, Borgen remained frozen. His unctuous smile had vanished. He looked worried. What was that about? whispered Ron, reeling his inextendable ear. I don't know, said Harry, thinking hard. He wants something mended, and he wants something reserved in there. Could you see what he pointed out when he said that one? No, he was behind that cabinet. You two stay here, whispered Hermione. What are you? But Hermione had already ducked out from under the cloak. She checked her hair in the reflection in the glass and marched into the shop, setting the tinkling bell again. Ron hastily fed the extendable ears under the door and passed one of the strings to Harry. Hello. 
Horrible morning, isn't it? said Hermione, brightly to Borgen, who did not answer, but cast her a suspicious look. Humming cheerily, Hermione strode through the jumble of objects on display. Is this necklace for sale? she asked, pausing aside, a beside a glass-fronted case. If you've got one and a half thousand galleons, said Mr. Borgen coldly. Oh, uh, no, I haven't gotten quite that much, said Hermione, walking on. What about this lovely, uh, skull? Sixteen galleons. So it is for sale, then. It's, it isn't, uh, being kept for anyone? Mr. Borgen squinted at her, and Harry had the nasty feeling he knew exactly what Hermione was up to. Apparently, Hermione felt she had rumbled, uh, she had been rumbled, too, because she suddenly threw caution to the wind. The thing is, uh, that boy was just in here now, Draco Malfoy. Well, he's a friend of mine, and I want to get him a birthday present, but if he's already reserved anything, I obviously don't want to get him the same thing, so, uh... It was a pretty lame story in Harry's opinion, and apparently Borgen thought so, too. Out! He said sharply, get out! And Hermione did not need to be asked twice, but hurried to the door with Borgen at her heels, and as the bell tinkled, Borgen slammed the door behind her and put the clothes sign up. Ah, well, said Ron, throwing the cloak back over Hermione. Worth a try, but you were a bit obvious. Well, next time, maybe you can show us how it's done, Master of Mystery, she snapped, and Ron and Hermione bickered all the way back to the Weasley Wizard Wheezes, where they were forced to stop so they could d dodge undetected around a very anxious-looking Mrs. Weasley and Hagrid, who had clearly noticed their absence. Once in the shop, Harry ripped off the invisibility cloak, hid it in his bag, and joined in with the other two when they insisted in answer to Mrs. Weasley's accusations they had been in the back room all along and that she could not have looked properly. And that will close us out for that chapter, and actually, for all the chapters that we will cover today in this episode, big, big moments in there. We get to learn about uh, about how Fred and George's joke shop's running, the type of products they have, the new, like, dark arts defender objects that they sell that they actually sold to the ministry and made a bundle off of with the shield hats, the cloaks and gloves, and the, the dark detonators, <laughs> like, the, like the Peruvian smoke and all that, like... They got some really cool stuff, and a lot of that comes into play later when they need to cause diversions and stuff. So, big things there, and then not to mention how it ends with Draco going into Borgen and Burks. There's two objects in there that are super important to the storyline, big foreshadows of what's to come. Yeah. And with that, I'll, I'll let Chase give his thoughts on that, and then we'll move into our potential plot holes. So, I'll let you go ahead and take it away with your last thoughts of that chapter. Yeah, man, I thought it was uh, cool, just like you were saying, like where they mentioned like the shield helmets and all that. I just pictured like the SWAT team for like Aurora's or the Ministry of Magic when they go to obliviate people. If they just bought a bunch of those, they could service all the Aurora's. Well, it said it only said <laughs> for, the support staff, so it didn't say like actual like Dark Wizard. If I wasn't like for Aurora's, it said like for all their support staff. So I'm thinking it's for like the clerks and the administrators, the people who probably aren't good with like spells. So they made them. They they bought them for that. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, because they did say like it's it only works against like your like small. Yeah, minor to moderate jinxes. Like any, yep. 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 Yeah. Um. So I thought that was really cool. Um. I thought it was really funny too, where you know it's mentioned that it was a total lame excuse. That was this. Like, you could tell it was in Hermione's head. So she's like, no, I'm going for it. And she's like, get the fuck out. <laughs> like, you get out here. Get out right now. Get out. <laughs> so uh, that's a typical Hermione line. Do you know how dumb that sounds? It wasn't even, even if she had just been, like, tried to play it off, be like, oh, my boyfriend was just in here. I was trying to get him something. But no, she's like, oh, that guy that was, like, a friend of mine that I know from like my brother's cousin. I really want to get him something, which is that item right there. Who's just looking at <laughs> <laughs> like, it sounds so like off the wall and strange, but yeah, man, uh, 
What plot holes did you have that you found? So, just this one. I want you to turn to this page with me because I need you to be my second set of eyes. Go to page 108. Now, on page 108, nice. the reason why I have this here is just because I think it's something people gloss over. But to me, especially in these times, there's no way that this is plausible and we can just accept this. Like, I'm not saying that like the, it's a plot hole in terms of like it doesn't make sense to the storyline. But it definitely, I, I can't buy that they would allow this to happen. So on page 108, it's the second paragraph where like they're talking about the money bag that uh, the, uh, he flung, that Bill gave to Harry. And where Ron says, where's yeah. mine? Demanded Ron at once, his eyes wide. That's already Harry's idiot, said Bill. I got it out of your vault for you, Harry, because it's taking about five hours for the public to get to their gold at the moment. The goblins have tight-ended security. So much two days ago that they, that uh, Archie Philpa had a probity probe suck up his whatever. You said that part. My plot hole is the goblins don't allow humans into the vaults. So there's no way Bill could go into Gringotts and get the money out of Harry's vault. On top of that, they're very strict about having the key that we see next book crazily. <laughs> right. So in what world does is Bill just have access to Harry's account without any permission? Harry, he didn't ask Harry, hey, do you want me to grab this for you? He just threw it to him. So like... <laughs> What like what would have happened if like you know they had a big fight? Remember how Percy doesn't get along with the Weasleys anymore? What if they just had like yeah. access to his account and just took Percy's money and said, "Well, you know, you're being an asshole. Now I got your money." Like that's so you can't you can't just say like Bill just had access to his account. Like they would never allow that. The goblins would never allow that. And like even just think about it in real life, dude. Like not even my parents have access to my bank account. You know what I mean? They're not gonna be like, yeah, <laughs> that's so that dumb. Even worse, that's like, yeah, I just went in there and helped you out because I worked there. Do you know how fired you'd be so fast? You're just bopping in people's accounts. Dude. You're, oh, yeah, I just took it out for you, Harry. Tried to help you out. I, I mean, I found your wallet. Nothing's in it. Like, though. it's crazy. Like, Don't. Bill was just able to access Harry's vault without consent or anything. And I thought, in the words of the previous book, in terms of Hagrid, I think Hagrid's the one that said it. Green, Gringotts is supposed to be the second safest place in the world outside of Hogwarts. Well, if it's that safe, why is anyone just casually walking in and taking money out of people's accounts because they know them? Uh, no. <laughs> yeah. Well, he, like, works Still. It, right? So, like... Yeah, I mean, like, doesn't he have, like, connections? It doesn't, it doesn't matter. <laughs> like, he had something to, like... That he did something with Gringotts. Yes, he's a curse breaker. Floor, he's a curse breaker so. for Gringotts. That has That's nothing to it. do okay, with yeah, being someone who collects else. the money from the account. Like, like <laughs> goblins don't let anyone accept themselves. Remember, like next, you know, book, you know, how they open the vaults. There's re there's ways that goblins can open vaults, like that the humans can't. So, like, anyways, I don't think Bill would be able to, but on the off chance he could, because he's a curse breaker and maybe knows how to, he definitely wouldn't be allowed to. Like, you know, like they definitely wouldn't let him get into someone else's vault, especially Harry Potter's vault of all people. Like, you know, like <laughs> who's like literally yeah. the most famous person in the world right now who everyone's trying to like rally around. You think they're just going to let anyone have access to his account? Unbelievable. Hey, Harry, here's a don't worry. I went ahead and took this out for you. Here's there's all your money there. Don't go bother looking for the 50,000 galleons because i mean don't worry that's all in there just trust yeah. me. just trust me i'm a trusting guy unbelievable dude. <laughs> trusting guy meanwhile it has like 10 galleons in yeah it. <laughs> you like, easily... oh yeah oh the count's empty friends are not man you could they could easily wiped out his account and anything screwed him over there's no way that he would have had access to that so that was my plot hole that i found that was the only one that i found did you have any other ones that you had found in that 
Yeah, I mean, the only one I found was the one you actually mentioned, which is funny, was that Lupin said, like, they're the best. Oh, the Ollivander's like, one thing? Yeah. Yeah, like, I'm, I mean, whatever. <laughs> I'll, I'll buy it. I'll go with it. I'm willing to let it ride. Like, the account thing is just absolutely insane. Right? Could you imagine, like, your friend just being like, oh, I worked at the bank, so I just figured I'd help you out and make sure you got your money a little faster, <laughs> so surprise i took it out for you he'd be so fired like you're right bro like that would be crazy man so <laughs> that's crazy. what i added for my my yeah, plot man. holes and then you had the one that we already talked about for Ollivanders. we kind of went through that earlier so then what i'll do is i'll pull out my interesting fact and i'll let chase give his after mine mine's super easy because there wasn't a whole ton of information about it but it's something that i mentioned in that last chapter like twilfit and taddings now twilfit and taddings I'll, I'll tell you guys where you can find it it's on the south side of Diagon Alley in London, England, Great Britain. So, where, like, you know, Madame Malkins is more kind of centrally located, Twilfit and Taddings is on the south side of it. And they say that uh, they're, they are, have known hats. They Among their range of clothes, one could purchase the following items. Suede top hat with ribbons, black, blue, and brown. Pointed wizard hats, black, green, and blue. And pointed wizard hats with a buckle, blue, green, and red. So it's likely that Twilfit and Taddings is considered a more upper class than Madame Malkin's robes for all occasions because only wealthy purebred families like Malfoy's favored it. So you wouldn't find like a lot of like muggles or mm-hmm. people that were like half-bloods going in there because it was more for people who had money and generally though speaking like pureblood families you know, preferred to go in there and get their, their stuff. So that is uh, all That's about awesome. uh, Twilfit and Taddings. That's what they had uh, listed for that information there and I'll let Chase kind of give you uh, his interesting fact, and then I'll close this on out for our first part of Half-Blood Prince. Yeah, man. I would have loved, like, I would have paid money to watch Ron walk into, like, a 12-foot in Taddings. <laughs> like, just walk in there. Not buy anything. Like, pull the typical Ron. Like, remember how he was pulling... It wasn't the sneakoscope. What was it? It was, like, the bifocal things in Goblet of Fire. Like, he, like, didn't have the money to buy it, so here he, like, yeah. covered him. I would love him just, like, to walk around and, like, try stuff on. And he's like, oh, I'm not, I don't have any money. <laughs> like, I'm not going to buy any of this shit. I just came in to check it out. <laughs> and then, of course, Harry would be, like, emptying out his account. Like, just get him Just everything. get it to him. Get him everything. Yeah. And then, you know, Sirius has to, like, have that big-ass life insurance policy that he left him. And then Harry got all the money back for all the fucking life yeah, right. insurance. <laughs> so, man. Anyways... Uh, yeah, mine's short and sweet too, man. You know, I try to leave all the uh, big long ones for uh, Wednesday's episodes, you know. So you get through this one, you got just a little bit of another challenge for you on Wednesday. But nah, Wednesday won't be too bad. But uh, this what this is, it's pretty cool. You said, you know, your boy Fred and George, uh, you know, they mentioned uh, that on the shelves they have the Wonder Witch products. Well, here's the actually the Wonder Witch products that were on the shelf uh, for all the ladies out there. So, you know, you can try them if you want, boys, but they're probably not going to meet your style. <laughs> like they have. Uh, so the first one that was on there, they had the kissing concoction. So uh, Harry could have used that going back last book when they you know it was valentine's day he could have used that at the a coffee shop or was it a tea shop it was a tea shop tea yep. shop tea yeah. shop getting some tea so that was the first one there the second one was uh love bulging bubbles so i guess like 
they'll make bubbles as you're kissing on somebody or you would just put them in the bathtub i would imagine <laughs> i that's the thing like they take a lot of baths in this book i don't take fucking baths <laughs> i'm not gonna be sitting there i got shit i gotta do <laughs> yeah anyways uh then they got the cupid crystals so that's kind of interesting that sounds expensive that's like one of them pandora charms <laughs> oh yeah woo gotta be in that in that serious relationship if you want one of those uh, they got heartbreak teardrops. That was interesting. I guess those are really good if you're preparing to go to spring break. So you want to leave the girl or the guy in the past because you're about to step into the new. It's all about the new. Uh, and then you do have uh, twilight uh, moonstones. So I thought that was pretty cool. I guess like more jewelry kind of thing. They have calamity lotion. So I just imagine someone puts that on their hands and their hands blow off how you wind up in st mungo's <laughs> that's yeah that's exactly and then we got uh the crush brush so i guess it's like a hairbrush but for crushes or you're gonna like crush it maybe it like crumbles in your hand or something no it's definitely then, for uh, like it's definitely like, the crush brush is like you give it to someone and they comb their hair with it and they they get a crush like your crush gets a crush on you like that's like okay yeah. that makes sense yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I just imagine this like massive Herculean wizard just crushing. <laughs> I came in for the crush brush. <laughs> like, that's not how you do that, sir. <laughs> it's not. No, you got the man bun, but that's not how we do it here. And then, uh, but no, that was good. Of course, flirting fancies. We've heard that one before. We've heard, well, a lot of fancies from George, really. And then the last one, uh, this was pretty cool. So they got uh, Love is Blind Eye Serum. Serum. Which I guess people use on blind dates. So that was interesting. So, yeah, it's, you know, uh, I'm not a blind date person. I've never really, I've actually never done a blind date. I gotta say that. Yeah, I'm not, I don't like those people that, you know, they kind of take someone else's photo, <laughs> show up, and then it's not even them. And they're like, well, no, like, it's still my photo, though. I was the guy in the background that was in that store <laughs> you're like oh yeah okay but yeah man uh with that you know once again guys thanks again for always tuning in uh leaving us a review that means a lot shout out podbean they're always shooting us out there uh we did actually do a couple weeks ago we actually had a live stream from a convention that we did so we do those every now and then we do like a convention like once a year so that was pretty cool that went well um, yeah, man, but, uh, you know, it, it's funny. We always go from, like, one massive book, so we feel like it's going to slow down. But, you know, and I know this one started off a little bit slower. Like, you didn't have some massive action-packed scene where you had Dementors attacking somebody or something. But the difference with the intellectuality in this book, which is why it's a little bit smaller, is because it's it's like almost reading like the Silmarillion, <laughs> like Lord of the Rings or something. Like it's that much more of an intellectual challenging book. Like it's a deep read. We're no longer just reading about wizard's chess <laughs> at this point. So there's a lot of comprehension involved. You always got to remember every single detail with a grain of salt because it's going to come back around later where you're going to have to remember that. Uh, so yeah, once again, guys, uh, thanks so much for all you do for us. And I'm going to let Jay Nelly sign us off. You got it, man. And uh, on top of that, we were talking about when we did our convention a few weeks ago, the podcast convention. If you guys wanted to check out uh, our video on there and then tune into our debate, we had did a really fun debate about uh, Marvel's movie uh, Avengers Infinity Wars. 
we well, I'll, we'll go ahead and let you kind of tune in to see what we talked about there. That's posted on our Instagram at official ridiculous Patronus. Uh, you also find it at on our Facebook page at uh, Chase and Josh Factor Fantasy. So as Chase was talking about, you know, thanks for all the, the support you give us all the time. So click that like button, subscribe, leave us a review and comment, all that great stuff. On top of that, uh, we've been doing a lot of stuff with uh, our, our social media lately. We've got some new videos that Chase has actually been working on, thinking about putting it up onto the TikTok. It's not, it's not fully done yet. It's one of the, some of those things that are coming. Uh, other things too that we've been doing outside of just you know talking about what we're doing on the podcast itself, we're, we're posting some other things as well that are just interesting in like the fantasy realm. Like you'll see a lot of like Chase recently has been posting some of his Power Ranger comics that he's been getting, getting them graded and all of that great stuff. I have a really funny story I want to tell him before <laughs> before I sign us off here. So uh, <laughs> two days ago I, I went over to Chase's place uh, to get. Uh, just to hang out and, and just like, you know, kind of get our notes in order for what we were going to do today. And uh, I went over there and as I was driving, he sent me a text message. He's like, hey, man, um, I'm going to go down to the mailbox real quick because I don't think he, he thought how close I was. So I, I didn't even have time to respond because I went right into his parking garage. So I go into his parking garage. I walk up the stairs and like knock on the door and he's not there. So I'm like, oh, he's still at the mailbox. He comes like walking up. He's like, man, I was really I got this uh, the notification from my phone. I. I thought that uh, my comic book was in my 9.8 grade comic was in ended up being these like medicine prescriptions and I was like oh dude that sucks and so anyways <laughs> you know he would go inside he drops it off and like he we end up going out to like Longhorn and Chase got a bunch of like gift cards for us and Chase was nice and treated me to to, uh, to lunch and so we get we go out there and then as we're on our way back he gets like another notification saying that a package has arrived in the mail room and so I was like hey man before we get back into the apartment I'm just gonna go check the mail real quick I got another notification so I think I have comics here. So he parks and he goes into the mail room, comes back out with a big old box, like all the time. I was like, "Yeah, hey, here it is!" Like, dude, open it up, open it up. So like, <laughs> like I open it up and like, I, I, I pull it out and I'm like, "Oh wow, like this is really nice bubble wrap. They did a great job keeping it safe." I pull out the bubble wrap and there's nothing in the box. It's just a bubble wrap. And Chase is like, "Oh yeah, I forgot. I ordered bubble wrap. So when I send my comics out to be graded, it keeps them safe. So that's just what's in that. It's just the bubble wrap." So literally like twice in the same day, he got all excited, like went down to go find his, his comic and it wasn't there either time, but he did finally get it. So if you guys want to check out what comic that was, it is on our Instagram page. I'll let Chase kind of defend himself and talk about that, have a little fun with that, and then I'll sign us off afterwards. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, you wanted me to defend about how, what happened with the bubble wrap? <laughs> it, uh, yeah. So basically what I've been doing, guys, so I did a lot of like research uh because you know jay nelly's like been over here before and i've been collecting comics for years just because honestly i'm one of those comic guys that really like i just go to the comic book store because it was cool like it kind of like prepared me for my day i'd grab a coffee before i go in you know like it just like sets your day and i'm like well cool i got something i can read on the toilet later like it's badass well like i'm the type like i literally like barely open it if i do and then I put them right in the board so they're like never touched. So I started thinking, like all these people were like, I went in a couple weeks ago, right, um, to the comic book store, which I told you we found a lot of cool things. And, you know, we mentioned Evan and his wife like shouted us out there and they were like, we listened to your podcast. Well, he was like, yeah, man, like you never touch your comics. And some of the ones like you bring in sometimes like. Like, literally, they meant get it. You get a lot more for this than if you just turn this in and we give you like a back issue book for free <laughs> or something. I'm like, yeah, I guess so. 
Uh, and I'm the type, like, you know, I just like the art and, like, cool, but it just sits in a box, right? Well, I'm a big Power Rangers guy because, you know, it takes me back to my roots when I was a kid. I always loved little Kimberly, you know? <laughs> That's uh, our first crush is Jay Nelly. Uh, so it's pretty cool. I'll put it on Instagram. Um, sent this bad boy in. So you'll see, too, I actually kept one of them that was like out of the graded just for myself because if i you know want to actually read it like you, if it's graded you can't touch it like try not to ever touch it like just put it in the thing if you plan on getting graded otherwise if you want to read on it on the toilet it's pretty cool uh, <laughs> try not to drop it in there though some people have i've heard horror stories about people dropping their phone in the toilet so try to drop a comic <laughs> in there and take that instead um, but yeah, it was a 9.8 and what's cool. I also found, uh, another one that I have the actual issue on and I'll post a photo on it. Uh, the variants that you can like real, they're both variants, but, um, the one variant that I got graded. So it's actually a Rita Repulsa edition and they only got one per store, no matter where they were at. And of course me, like the, the, comic dude that really doesn't have care i got two <laughs> so like i got one graded but one's not and then the other one is so what it is is it's ranger slayer so it's the first time kimberly has ever actually appeared uh and it's a really big kickoff because it actually ties into what they call the whole shattered grid realm where you know they were trying to really capture in the whole um timeline of everyone knows if you watch power rangers tommy's the green ranger and how he goes from like bad so it's all about like his bad side and him being like a double agent but like kim comes in there so that's really what it's about and it's the first time you know if you follow comics the way these things are like really flipped for big notice is it's about character appearances so i thought it was cool but it's just a gorgeous uh graded comic there we'll have some cool ones coming out like jay nelly knows one that's huge that i'm saving for you and i got uh, a thor one that i'm saving for you that'll be cool so we'll be having some of those like really big reveals later on as we make it through like these big arcs just to, for the fun of it because you know we like the fantasy side guys but until then you know we got some side side stuff on the instagram and that sort of thing so that way you don't have to look at you know muggle cups all day <laughs> <laughs> that i'm putting that on the coffee machine man and with that i'll let jay nelly break us down. sounds good brother and so the guys did a reminder of what we tackled today we tackled chapter one the other minister through chapter six draco's detour next week when we rejoin you again we'll be tackling chapter seven through chapter 12 but that's then this is now and i'm gonna let you go because this has been another ridiculous production chase and josh Factor Fantasy, signing, signing off. off.